0: everyone. And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with
1: Andrea Subasati.
0: And happy 2018, everyone. You are the last people I think I have to say happy 2018 to.
1: Yeah, after this, I'm I'm, I'm done.
0: I'm done. It's the year. The year has <laughs> begun. <laughs> this is our annual assessment episode. Mm-hmm. This episode has kind of evolved and changed over the years. And this year's note, Different. We're kind of taking the structure of what we did last year, and uh, we solicited you guys for questions. And I think it's gonna be a really fun episode to look back at the year prior and things that we're thinking about and things that we're talking about. And yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, we're just gonna hang out. It's gonna
1: be good times. I've already had a bit of a look at the bloopers that I'll be sharing with you, undercutting the segments of this episode. We hope you enjoy those. Uh, not as much belching this year, so mm. yeah,
0: we have to work on that. I don't
1: know what to make of that.
0: But yeah, this is the podcast equivalent to a slumber party. It is. So everyone get on your jam jams, hang out, grab some, you know, spiked hot cocoa. And hit us with pillows, I guess. Yeah. How was your year overall? It was a strange year. It was a really strange year. I think worldview wise, like outside of me, it was a really fucked up year politically. Yeah. Um, A lot of really weird things happening, but kind of internally, personally, there was so much positives that came out of it. I finished my second book, which is going to be published in early 2018. So hopefully in a couple months for you guys to pick up or get at your local library. We went to Salem. We did. It was so much fun. We did our first ever live episode, which now you guys have all had a chance to hear. And yeah, just had some other really good personal stuff happen. So it's been a kind of strange roller coaster of being like so mad during the day and then kind of coming home or going on trips and getting to do stuff, which is really cool that I never thought I would have gotten to do. A whole
1: lot of feels, a lot of feels last year. Last year, I feel like was a huge adjustment year for me. It was my new job. It was my new apartment. And, you know, when you're undergoing that much change, you really try to look at it as an opportunity to really kind of make the life that you want and make sure that all these decisions are toward the life that you want. And so to that end, Dustin and I got a dog. I think was maybe my biggest deal of 2017 as I got little Dante's, my Pomeranian. If you would like to follow him on Instagram, his handle is Dante of the Dead. And he is ridiculous and cute and a wonderful distraction from all the stresses of my life. So that was wicked. Salem was also a huge highlight. That was so much fun. And it was also a pretty friggin' good year for horror movies, I've got to say.
0: Yeah, it's been a really exciting year because this is the first year in a number of years. like I can't remember the last time this happened that my favorite movie of 2017 was a horror movie. You can't remember the last time that I happened? I can't remember. I always have horror movies that I love each year that I talk about, but sometimes they kind of you know ebbs and flows. Like three years later, I'll realize how much I really love that movie. Oh, okay, right. Um, Or some years, there are times when it's like my favorite movie is an arty thriller or something else. Yeah, I do have horror films that I really like. But this past year in 2017, I can say without hesitation that I had a favorite movie that was also a horror movie. And that felt really, really exciting to me.
1: I think I know the answer, but uh, pray tell what could that film be?
0: Well, I uh, was putting together my list, and kind of similar to last year, I think. Most of them are in no particular order. They're just films I really love and feel strongly about for a variety of reasons. But this one was, oh boy, in terms of a great film and a great cultural artifact, a great cultural moment, it was Jordan Peele's Get Out. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Top of my list, too.
1: And I'm so glad I got to see that with
0: you Mm -hmm. in the cinema right when it came out. Yeah, we actually got, uh, thanks to Andrea and her uh, super fancy editorial ship, Andrea got invited uh, to an advanced screening of Get Out. So I think we saw it a couple days before it got wide released. And she very kindly invited me to go along with her. And then I actually got the opportunity to rewatch it in October mm-hmm. uh, with my boyfriend because he hadn't seen it yet and he was really curious about it. So we watched it and he loved it. And then for me, getting to see it a second time, Uh, I just realized the craftsmanship behind it, the amount of detail in it. It works as a really straightforward journey Mm -hmm. for these characters. But then when you go back and watch it, and I fully intend to rewatch it again soon, there are so many details and so many things that kind of come together in strange ways that it's a film that I feel like I will always go back to. And I am so thrilled, you know, no matter whether it wins awards or doesn't, that it is getting that kind of recognition. It's, Mm -hmm. It's really thrilling for me. It is. It's exciting to see how this
1: film is getting received because, you know, a film will come out and you see it and you like it or you don't. And I think this movie is going to become an exemplar. It's going to become one of those movies that you always refer back to where it's like, oh, is this too ham-fisted with social commentary? No, it can be done. Is this a kind of racial commentary that's going to make white people uncomfortable? No, it can be done. Can a movie be terrifying, suspenseful, hilarious all at the same time? Yeah, it can be done. Like this movie raised the bar in so so many ways that again, even if it doesn't win a million awards, it's I'm sure one of my favorite films of this decade.
0: Absolutely. I actually get chills thinking about it. It's uh It's a bit cold in here. <laughs> but it is it's one of those movies that you know you watch and you know whether you're a film fan or a film writer or or you participate in the industry in any way or you don't it's one of those movies that for me I walk out and I'm like yeah this is why I love film Mm -hmm. this is why I love going to see film and uh, thinking about them and talking about them Mm -hmm. so it is you know going to say we did get a lot of questions when it came out back in February about are you guys going to do an episode about it when are you going to do an episode about it Blah, blah, blah 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 one of the the things I tended to do uh, was link to a really, really great episode of the NPR podcast Code Switch called uh, "The Horror," and uh, so this is an episode they did right around the time that Get Out came out, and it's so brilliant and incisive, and has so much analysis. and They talk to Jordan Peel, they talk to other scholars about black horror. And it, it just, I feel like they say so much that I would just be like, go listen to that episode. <laughs> so I don't, maybe one day we will get around to doing Get Out as part of something else. Yeah. But all that going to say, what I will do in the show notes is we'll link to that NPR code switch episode so you guys can hear it for yourself. Yeah. And also our dear friend, Ashley Blackwell, who runs the Graveyard Shift Sisters site and everything that goes along with that. She published an amazing post called The Get Out Syllabus, and it is all of these kind of, I find, really accessible academic articles, uh breaking down a variety of elements in this film, and I've kind of worked my way through them through the year, and they're just so interesting, so well-written, and I feel like, if anything, Get Out has to do a lot with black experiences and black voices, and I would never, ever want to take away from that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think down the line, we might do something about it. Mm -hmm. But I also want to champion the voices that have already been saying this since it came out and before it came out. So please check out those resources. We'll link those in the show notes. And yeah, but seriously, get out. Oh, God, I just want to slow clap it all the time.
1: I can't imagine any of our listeners haven't seen it yet. I I feel like this movie is just right up your alley, if Faculty of Horror is indeed up your alley. But um, I'm starting to see a little bit of backlash online because it is permeating the awards shows and people are like, oh, you stop ramming Get Out down my throat. Why is it so in my face? And I I think the sociologist in me is going to want to kind of look at that reaction holistically. So it might take a year Mm -hmm. or two for the dust to fully settle on this Mm -hmm. and what an impact it
0: made on horror and I say uh, kudos to Blumhouse for making this film you know I think Blumhouse has made some really great films I think they made some fun films they've made some films they don't necessarily really care for but hey they're doing their thing and you know they took a chance on Get Out Mm -hmm. and I think it paid off for them huge huge amounts yeah Uh, the one thing I will say that (laughs) kind of bugged me about Get Out was the trailer did you see the trailer before we saw it I don't remember. Because I remember seeing the trailer uh, before another movie. And I'm very much a horror fan who doesn't like to watch trailers. Mm-mm. I just find they give a lot away. And if I'm interested in something, I just want to see it. I mm-hmm. don't want to know anything about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I went to see a movie and the Get Out trailer played right before. And I was like, okay, well, I'm already in for this movie because I love Jordan Peele. But okay, this seems like it's a lot of plot a lot of plot in the trailer. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess based on what I'm seeing in the trailer, there's going to have to be some extra twists and turns. And then when I saw the film, there weren't those extra twists and turns. I actually felt like the trailer gave away so much.
1: You know, trailers are made by a completely different creative department, and it's a problem. That's we could do an episode on that. We could do an episode mm-hmm. on horror marketing and how problematic it can be. And I have to watch a lot of trailers for work, but for the most part, if it's something I know I'm already interested in, I try to steer mm-hmm. clear. And yeah, that's such a great example of
0: and marketing. And to g- prove that point even further, when I saw it with my boyfriend, he'd heard really good things about Get Out. He'd heard about it, but he'd seen the trailer. So the whole kind of like first two thirds-ish of the film, he was like, oh, god is he gonna be the kill? what's is that blah, blah blah and he was just like conjecturing this whole thing which was just like really kind of cool to watch yeah. and then when the end just happened he was like i had no idea that was gonna happen and it was like fuck i wish i hadn't seen that trailer yeah still love it still it's still like one of the best movies i've seen in a really long time but uh everyone pull it back with your trailers
1: yeah so that one's, I hear what you're saying about not presenting them in any particular order, but that one just like spills mm-hmm. out of my mouth almost as in a duh. Like, do I yeah. even need to say that that one is at <laughs> the top of the pops? But there was a lot of great ones. The next one I want to mention, maybe a bit contentious. I've definitely heard conflicting reports on this one. It comes at night. All right. I, I loved it. Great. Did you like it? I thought it was Okay. I thought it was so restrained. Are we going to do spoilers in this episode? Or like if we're doing a year in review, can
0: Uh, we... I feel like we should avoid spoilers on this.
1: Okay, I can avoid spoilers. I I almost want to because if you haven't seen this film, I want to be able to give it my endorsement because like me, you were probably hearing all these conflicted reviews about it. And I appreciated the fact that there's a bit of a red herring. You're expecting it to go one way, and you're expecting one thing to be the point, and you're expecting that to come, and then it doesn't, which totally deflects your focus, and at the end of it, you're almost remembering the film differently than you watched it in real time, if that makes any sense. Well, you've seen it.
0: Yeah, I saw sense it in theaters. You? came out, and... Um it was strange because I went on uh, Tuesday or Cheap Tuesday. I'm sure you guys have this everywhere. I hope you do. So you get, you know, a few bucks off your movie ticket. And uh, so it was a packed house and they were all expecting a jump scare kind of film. Mm. And it's very much not that. It's, right. you know, a lot of atmosphere, a lot of kind of sinking dread. And so I could feel the audience around me getting bored. Oh, no. Which is, you know, and we talk about, you know, when we saw Get Out, it was like the audience was just like, I am here for this. Yeah. And this, it was just like the audience went from being like, oh, I think I'm here for this. I don't think I'm here for this. Oh, I'm going to just play on my phone for the uh, last, like, 15 minutes of the movie. Fuck. So, I, I mean, what I recall from the film was that I really liked the performances across yes. the board. I thought there was some interesting stuff. But for the life of me, there I can't remember much about it. yeah. It might be one of those films
1: that the circumstances under which you watch it is Mm -hmm. so pivotal and so key. You've got to give yourself over to it. I saw it on my living room couch, but I did put my phone away and turn Mm -hmm. the lights down and bought in fully.
0: And I should say, and, and you know, I think we both kind of echo this sentiment, and we have said it before, I think, on this podcast, that our opinions about film, all of our opinions about film are subjective. Mm-hmm. So um we can have completely differing views on a film, and all of us be totally right. Yeah. So we're going into this with that kind of spirit. So for me, the next film I had written down was Tragedy Girls, directed by Tyler McIntyre.
1: So Good. And so, good. so wedded to my positive experience of going to Salem. Like it was amazing to travel with you. It was amazing to do our first live podcast and meet fans from all over Canada and the US. But that film rocked my socks.
0: Yeah. It was so fun. I had heard positive things about it and I like intentionally stayed away from anything outside of, oh, I hear it's a fun kind of movie. Mm-hmm. So when we got to see it, we saw it the day before we did our live show at Salem Horror Fest and they programmed it and I, I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. It was so funny. It was so dark. The performances were just oh, so good and, and there's so many um, any kind of teenage film that has a black comedy edge to it it's like oh it's the new heathers and i'm like i feel like this one kind of somersaults over heathers and is like fuck you let's go do some stuff i agree and i was just like i just loved it i didn't want it to end yeah but it was just magical i can't wait to watch it again
1: that's right and as like 30 something ladies watching this The story in Tragedy Girls is about these very much millennial social media steeped high schoolers, but I did not find them irritating. The movie wasn't making fun of them. The movie Mm -hmm. was entirely on their side and about them and about their friendship and about their passion. It's very heartwarming. It's very funny. I had a bit of a funny experience going into it because I got a message over Twitter from this guy that I used to go to school with in Ottawa saying, hey, my brother made a horror movie. You might hear about it. I don't know. And I get messages like that all the time. Like people want to kind of pull favors to get into Rue Morgue or whatever. Tragedy Girls. Oh, okay. McIntyre. Yeah, that makes Mm. sense. Tyler McIntyre. And my friend's name is Hector. And then I saw the film and I was just texting him (laughs) like, holy shit, dude. I will never again doubt your (laughs) – Your family credential and I I hope he does a lot more stuff. We also got to meet the producer Mm -hmm. at Salem Horror Fest. Tara was lovely. I hope something else in the genre comes out from that team because that was a breath of fresh air.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of the films on my list were ones that got screened at festivals and then got bought. This is what's happening a lot with genre film right now is they go to a festival, they get bought, which, yay, we want that to happen to films because then they can kind of pay investors back and keep making movies and all of that stuff. But then they just kind of get put on VOD. or on a streaming service. You know, there's very few of this kind of level that go to the cineplexes. So, it, you know, I think that's why genre film festivals are really important and really vital. Like, you know, even though Tragedy Girls had been bought straight out of South by Southwest when it premiered early last year, you know, we got to see it in October before it hit VOD at Mm -hmm. Salem Horror Fest. Mm -hmm. So I I always kind of keep that in mind because I think for our generation – you know, being the kind of late millennials, pre-millennials, wherever you want to put us, there's a kind of snobbiness to uh, the kind of straight to video mentality. Even for horror fans, even for horror fans, Mm -hmm. even though we love some of those films. So it's, you know, been a real kind of retraining of myself as a film fan to actually go to iTunes and kind of look at the new releases and new releases in horror and on Netflix and see what's showing there. And just because I haven't heard of something doesn't mean it's not super amazing
1: and worthwhile. That's right. And it also, like you said, it stresses the importance of these festivals, but like look at coverage of these festivals because they are going to uncover gems that you may or may not get to see you know at room Org, we do monthly screenings in toronto at a rep cinema and we try to kind of find something that isn't in the cineplex that might not get wide release that you might only be able to see on your living room couch if not for the cinema Cobb screening so that's something that we take very seriously in horror journalism and that actually ties in nicely with the next film that i want to mention which had the sleepiest tiniest little release straight out Onto VOD, and I didn't even hear about it until after it happened. But I checked the film out and I loved it so much that I put it on the cover of the summer issue. And that movie is Andrew Getty's The Evil Within. And it's not a perfect film, guys. It is not glossy, it is not polished. I know for a fact that it wasn't even finished at the time of its release. The backstory around this film is really fascinating, having to do with Andrew Getty, who is an heir to the Getty fortune. That entire family is mired in show business in very strange ways and kind of cursed. (laughs) I think there's a miniseries and a movie coming out soon on the Getty family. And one of the more notorious stories about this family is... A family member was kidnapped and held for ransom.
0: That's um, the new Ridley Scott film. Is it All the Money in the World or something? Yes, that is it. Where Kevin Spacey was in it and then they had to like cut him out and reshoot it with Christopher Plummer. Yep. Yep. And
1: there's also like a TV miniseries something. I don't know. I'm kind of keeping an eye on it tangentially. It's not about Andrew Getty who directed this film. It's about another Getty, but it's still a crazy fucked up story. But anyway, The Evil Within is problematic in so many ways, but so intensely, bizarrely creative visually. It blew my socks off. We screened it here in Toronto. It's definitely worth a shot for creativity alone, in my opinion. You weren't crazy about it.
0: No, speaking of two people having two vastly different opinions on a film and still being totally right. Yeah, I, it was one that uh, I think you lent to me, Andrea, and uh, you told me it was like really, really scary. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, it's gonna be really fucking scary. It scared me badly. And I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, it's like a CW made for TV movie. It just, it didn't reach me. It yeah. did not reach me. And, you know, that's never the place that I come from as a film fan or a film writer. I always want to get my socks knocked off. I'm always mm-hmm. rooting for the movie when it starts. And this one, I just didn't get. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is if, um, you have picked it up or you can pick it up via rue com, the wonderful John Bowen, uh, wrote the cover story. Yes. On it. And, uh, it, it didn't change my mind about the film, but it did make me think about it. And it, what he wrote, because he wrote a couple pieces surrounding it. they're such beautiful pieces of film writing. It kind of endeared the film to me, even though I probably never, ever watch it again. But there you go. Different strokes, different folks. Yeah. Next up for me uh, was one that I saw on Netflix. I think I had, again, heard something in passing about it being good or scary or interesting. And that would be Nicholas Pesce's. The Eyes of My Mother. Oh, I didn't see that. Holy shit, guys. So this was one I really didn't know anything about except from the cover image on Netflix. And I Which sat, was? It was a side shot of a woman, and it's black and white, and then it's just these black kind of tears or stains running down her mm-hmm. face. So they look like tears but or something else, but it could also be blood. Yeah. Because it's black So and the white. most generic. Yeah. Like, it's a beautiful shot, but it's also very, very, like, horror with a capital H. Right. And I watched it, and uh, I've talked to several people about it, even recently, and it's one of those films that I could not tell you what was happening from moment to moment. Like, you know, I was following the story, but I wouldn't be able to tell you what was going to happen next. Yeah. And, you know, I watched so many films, and I love them so, so much, that I can generally kind of plot out a film. Like, mm-hmm. I watched the first couple of scenes. I'm like, okay, I think this and this and this is going to happen. And I usually, they don't stick the landing. I get pretty close. And this was one of those films that I just couldn't fully get a hold of. It just kept like squirming and going in different places and different things kept happening. And I just, I was totally blown away by it it's one of those films that affected me so much i don't know if i could ever properly write about it or wow um do something about that just because it was such a visceral experience but andrea i would love to hear what you think about it cool okay um, if you ever get to it what's it about is it like a period piece um no it's kind of set in time non-specific okay it kind of you know does away with a lot of regular narrative tropes but it's about this um woman, young woman, you kind of see her grow up in this remote country home and the things that kind of come in and out of the house and the darkness that okay. resides within okay. this really small family and cool. how it permeates. And um, ooh, ooh, it's chilling. It's creepy. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the next one on my list
1: was a bit of an oddball. It's a Dark Song.
0: I don't even know what that is. I think
1: you might like it. It's about a woman who has suffered a tragedy, and so she enlists the help of a man who is an occultist, but he is a fucking dick. He's an asshole and potentially also a creep, and he agrees to help her, but on all these crazy conditions, that we're going to rent this house, and you were going to cook for me, you were going to clean for me, you were going to do whatever the fuck I say. And he doesn't mean that nicely, like, I'm going to be in charge, and I might ask you to do things. No, he's super, super mean about it, and she's so desperate that she agrees, and that's the backdrop of this entire film where, I, I don't want to give too much away, but... You basically spend the entire film wondering if he's full of shit or not. And you're wondering that along with her because Mm -hmm. she is going along with this agreement and thinking, fuck, this better be worth it. Is he manipulating me? Is he going to turn around and just kind of be some creepy weirdo who Mm. is preying on my grief? I think it really falters in the third act. Oftentimes when I love a movie and I hate its ending, it makes me not like the movie, but this one is an exception. And I know people who enjoyed the ending. I thought it was just not pulled off uh, technically as well as the rest of the film, and it kind of pulled me out of it, but I would definitely recommend it.
0: Cool. I'd definitely love to check that out. I'm all for ambition, even if it doesn't fully realize itself. Mm -hmm. I'd rather see something ambitious than something that plays it safe. Next up for me was I'm Not a Serial Killer, directed by Billy O'Brien. Was that last year? Mm -hmm. Well, that's when I saw it. But, Uh, yeah, I think you screened it back in February. Well, we watched it here. Yeah, and I couldn't couldn't make it. I couldn't make Uh, it to that. But you mentioned, like, oh, there's this film, and I really like it. And then I saw it was on Netflix. So I was like, oh, I'll definitely give this a shot. Okay, okay. And I just – it was so moving and strange. And I just absolutely adored it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a nice little oddball, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, again, that's not one I've heard a lot of people talk about – And I think especially for people kind of around our age, it's really, really lovely to see Christopher Lloyd show up in things. And I think, you know, for as dark and as creepy and scary as that film is, it has so much heart Mm -hmm. that it kind of it broke me a little bit at the end. And I I thought it was. Yeah, uh, I definitely that's another one I'm really excited to rewatch.
1: Yeah, that's that's also another one that maybe suffers from or problematic marketing, even the title, mm-hmm. uh, as much as I enjoyed the film that I was like, why is it called that?
0: Yeah, it doesn't quite nail what the film is, but, you know, it, it sells itself short yeah. is what I think. I, I think the film is about so much more than serial killers, even though serial killers are kind of part of it.
1: Uh, next one I'd like to mention, this one, actually, I came across thanks to you, Oh, and that's Hounds of Love.
0: Oh, nice. That's also on my list. Yeah, so Alex was a guest at a screening. Mm-hmm. Funny story behind this one. A very nice, prominent film critic in Toronto, I think, was asked to talk at a and a or after a screening of this film when it had a small premiere here in Toronto and he couldn't do it and he suggested me because I like horror and stuff and so the PR company got in touch with me and they were like, hey, do you want to come out to Carlton Cinema on this night and talk after? I think they asked you as well and you couldn't make it. Right. And I could so I was like, yeah, yeah, cool, I'll do it. So I get to the theater, and it's this small theater, the Carlton in Toronto, if anyone knows it. And I get there, and I'm all like, well, I'm just here to you know, talk after a film screening. Whenever. And you hadn't seen the film at the time. I point. had. I had seen it before, oh. and, and so I was totally in love with it. And I okay. was like, I, I really want to talk about it. And so I get there, and there's a sign that says, you know, this beautiful poster. It's this, like, fuchsia pink poster for Hounds of Love. There's a sign stuck onto it that says, stick around for a post-Q&A screening with Alexander West.
1: No. And
0: I was like... God damn it, Alexander West! Always one step ahead. No. So I think you can, if you scroll back in my Instagram, you can find it. But anyway, yes, it is about a murderous couple in Australia in the 1980s, a kind of semi true story, and it's terrifying. It's so scary. It's
1: very ugly. It's very mm-hmm. gritty in its realism, and it depicts a lot of really toxic relationships and they unfold and they culminate and one thing that I really love about this film is it's a very dark, twisted subject matter and it approaches stuff like sexual violence without ever being exploitative, without ever being too graphic about it. It's subtle in depicting these things and again that's something that as a film critic, as as a horror fan, I'm so happy to see that done right. I'm happy to have an example of, look, you can have horrible rape scenes without mm-hmm. it being a, a harrowing experience. Well, no, it's still a harrowing
0: experience. Well, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one that I would say brace yourself for some really upsetting stuff. If you are conscious of things triggering you, I'd say maybe stay away from it mm-hmm. or, you know, do a bit of research before you watch it. But it is, you know, for what it sits out to do and what it pulls off, it's very, very impressive. Yeah, just kind of mesmerizing through the performances, the shooting style, the tension that is built Ugh. throughout it, like I felt sick. Sickening, yeah. Sick to my stomach at certain points, but yeah. So I'm going to give you guys a two for here because they – I don't know if they're technically horror movies, but they are documentaries. And they are documentaries that I think kind of fit the bill of what you guys might be interested in seeing from a horror perspective. So the first one is Beware the Slender Man by Irene Taylor Brodsky. And then the second one is 7852 by Alexandra O. Philippe. So obviously, Beware the Slender Man tackles the creepy pasta mythology of the Slenderman while also using the true crime case of the two little girls who murdered their friend because Slenderman told them to. And it's a really big scope documentary that I felt did a lot of justice to the subject matters that we talked about. So I know a few years ago we talked about Room 237 when we talked about The Shining and how it was kind of for us a bit all over the place and it didn't quite do a lot for us. Mm -hmm. Whereas this film I felt like set up a lot. It sets up the mythology of Slenderman. They then talk to a lot of, you know, I think like experts and sociologists about like, what happens with mythology? What happens when we begin to think that mythology is real? Uh, they talk to a lot of psychoanalysts and therapists about mental illness that could have um, triggered these girls into performing these kind of acts. They talk to the parents of these girls. Mm. It's absolutely gut-wrenching but really intriguing. So it's a great mixture of true crime – that is still being played out in the courts today, and then just the mythology of Slender Man. Mm -hmm. And I know Slender Man's getting its own film this year. It is, yeah. That's fun. The next film, Seventy Eight Fifty Two, is an analysis of the shower scene in Psycho. And the 78 and 52 come from the amount of camera setups and then edits within that scene. And it's about a four-minute scene. And I think for any faculty of horror fan, it's a really great film to watch because not only do they get into the... Film techniques that are employed in this scene, why it's important, but also the production history, the history around it, the history of the time, Mm. if you're interested in Psycho. And I I would like to get to that one day on this podcast. It's a really, really great primer about what that film meant and Mm. why it meant what it did. And they talked to... You know, people like Elijah Wood, Guillermo del Toro, you know, some other really cool people. They also talked to Jamie Lee Curtis, who is, of course, Janet Lee's daughter, Mm -hmm. who was, um, the almost protagonist of Psycho. You know, if you're interested in that time and kind of pre-new Hollywood of the American cinema, Definitely check it out. It's a really interesting watch.
1: Yeah. One thing I heard a lot about that documentary was how artfully they portrayed everything. They kind of put all of their interview subjects in that world,
0: so Mm -hmm. to speak. Yeah. It wasn't totally overt, Mm -hmm. but it was just subtle enough. It added just enough to it. So it didn't detract from anything they were saying, but you did feel like it was all part of the same world. It wasn't just, you know, endless setups in different locations of people talking. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, the next one on my list is maybe a bit of a cheat because I do remember talking about it on last year's assessment episode. But hey, it's been wide released. Now you can see it. Better watch out. It's out. (laughs) I I got to see it a full calendar year before. It's a Christmas movie. So it's the kind of movie that's not going to come out when it's ready. It's (laughs) going to come out. When we're ready for it. But holy shit, I loved it. I don't think you'd seen it at the time that I no, mentioned
0: it. No, you sent me a screener link, I think in the summer when it was kind of out for press and stuff like that. Yeah. I liked it. Didn't make it my favorites. No. But I liked it. It was cool. fun. Good performances. Speaking of films that may not make anyone else's favorite list this year, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable for a second, guys. I'm going to be really fucking vulnerable. Oh, I'm going to crush you. Oh, I'm just no. This was a film that I legitimately think is kind of great. And then also the circumstances when I saw it, it was like the perfect film to see at that moment. Oh, okay. If you guys know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. if you've ever had this, mm-hmm. and that would be Underworld Blood Wars directed by Anna Forrester. Wow. Um I Hot Take. I, it Hot Take it's I think the most irreverent camp classic of the decade. Yeah. It was so strange and bonkers and off the wall Uh, there's some like actually really good performances in this because so many of the actors knew exactly what movie they were in Mm. the kind of main female villain she's fantastic and Kate Beckinsale gets like a weird vampire makeover like towards the end of the film it's really fucking funny and I went to see it with my roommate Chris and we both had really weird days and he was like I just want to go see this movie and I was like all right went to see it and we had the best fucking time. Nice. So that movie will always hold a special, special place in my heart because I just think it was so much fun. It was so irreverent. Again, like, Kate Beckinsale's action hero vampire lady, Celine or Selena, whatever the fuck her name is. She gets a makeover. She gets a full on fucking makeover towards the end of the film. It's bananas, but it so works. I think that's the kind of energy and campiness and silly that I want out of something like a Resident Evil. And unfortunately, that franchise just takes itself way too seriously mm. now. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like if you're ever, like, really hungover and you just need to watch something and you're like, I just want sassy women being sassy and, like, smacking people around and, like, telling people to do shit, uh, you should check out Underworld Blood Wars. Well, I'm sold. A makeover into a vamp? Is no, so exciting to me. She's already a vampire.
1: No, but like it's a vampy makeover.
0: Yeah, like a vampy makeover. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like for someone like me who grew up on the gothy side and seeing all these movies take a weirdo vampy gothy dark girl and turn her into a cheerleader, it would be really nice to see the inverse.
0: Yeah, it's so bananas. And I'd I think it's
1: it. it's kind of exciting that these franchises that are so far underway, you know, they know that they're going to make some money based on the name alone, that they can afford to take mm-hmm. some chances, like yeah. resident. And evil is not an example of that, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. Yeah. Sometimes they get a little bit zany and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's a lot to ask for you to keep up with a franchise three, four, five, six entries in to kind of get to that point. What number was this one? Four, three, five?
0: What? Really? Yeah. I think Holy so. shit. There are like a lot of them. That's wild. Yeah. And, and still Kate Beckinsale all the way still through. Still Kate fucking Beckinsale. And she looks amazing. Mm-hmm. But I will give you guys a spoiler because I kept watching for it. and I kept hoping for it. And it doesn't happen. There, There is no Scott Speedman cameo. Rats. I'm fine. Also, it's super fun. And if you guys want a fun, silly movie, check that out.
1: Next on my list, the cover story of the January-February issue of Rumorg magazine is a movie called Revenge. And again, I'm not going to say that it is a perfect film. It definitely has its flaws. But in terms of films that had moments that kicked me in the gut, this one had the most cringing depiction of the microaggressions that go into rape culture that I have ever, ever seen in cinema. And there have been a couple of great rape revenge films that have come out this year couple of great ones that were made by women which is what inspired me to do the rape revenge issue of Rumorg for the january february issue and this one
0: is is worth watching for that scene alone in my opinion hmm. i've not had a chance to see that yet but i am dying to so i'm really really looking forward to being able to see it i think it's gonna be on shutter it is gonna be on shutter yeah. it, it is already is it already mm-hmm. oh fuck i need to watch that then Next up for me is a really successful horror comedy, and that's Prevenge, written and directed by Alice Lowe. It's a British film, and it just, again, it was irreverent, it was silly, it was dark, it was heartbreaking. So well done, just so well done on every level. I I just encourage you to check it out, and it's about motherhood and um, it made me care about it even though I am not a mother and even though I don't really have any interest in being a mother Mm. which we have talked about before on this podcast but definitely it wasn't distancing in the way that some narratives about motherhood can be Uh. and it's funny it's really funny and she's terrific she's also the lead in the film
1: right? Well, I haven't seen it but from what I understand she was very much actually really pregnant at the time of making this film so
0: she was awesome. And uh, the movie's terrific. Really, really terrific. Cool. And then for my last pick for 2017 of pure kind of horror genre film, uh-huh. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to pick a film that I saw in the 1st weekish of 2018, but I know it got released in 2017, and I don't want to wait another year to tell you guys about it, and that is MFA, which Andrea screened this past week at at the Royal Cinema here in Toronto as part of Rue Morgue Cinema Cobb. And holy shit, I kind of knew the premise of the film Mm -hmm. before going, and it just exceeded every expectation I had. It's so amazing. And I kind of saw it as a secondary feature. That's how I became aware of it in yeah. Rue Morgue. And again, it's just one of those films I, I don't want people to not know about it. I, I it's want too it, like, important. Yeah. yeah. S- you know, I was saying this to uh, someone else this week. It was, y- you know, it made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me want to burn shit to the ground when mm-hmm. I left the cinema. Made me want to cheer. Yeah. And uh, my partner came with me to see it. And, you know, we wound up having like... Uh, He loved it as well, and we wound up having this really intense but, like, thoughtful, intimate discussion about the film, and it brought up so many different things for both of us, Mm -hmm. and I I think that just speaks to so much of the strengths of the film, and um, yeah, MFA, go watch it, check it out.
1: Yeah, it's it's another Mm rape-revenge film, but this one takes place in the context of a college campus, which is really, it's, it's its own microcosm of sexual assault like the shit that goes on there I I remember when I was an undergrad there was a rash of sexual assaults happening there was a curfew in place everybody was talking about it somebody got beaten up so badly she got her jaw wired shut like it was horrible it was graphic and then with this whole Brock Turner thing like the the light is starting to shine on shit like this it's mm-hmm. starting to shine in Hollywood it's starting to shine on campuses and it's starting to shine on cinema with movies made by really smart sensitive women who know how to tackle this properly. And MFA definitely tops my list of best of 2017 as well. And it's one of those movies that because I wrote on it for the magazine and I got to talk to the women involved who are so smart, so sweet, so passionate, it just puts this film really close to my heart. I'm glad you brought it up.
0: Yeah. And then I think Andrea and I both made a couple choices, which we would call maybe horror adjacent yeah. They they feature elements that would belong in a horror movie, but maybe the film itself isn't horror proper. Right. Shall we say. Uh-huh. The first one for me on this uh, kind of brief list is The Shape of Water by Guillermo del Toro.
1: I haven't seen it yet. Uh. And it's fucked because I was invited to two different screenings weeks before it came out. I would have been the specialist happiest snowflake, and I had the flu from hell, and I still haven't seen it.
0: Yeah, I saw it kind of over the Christmas holidays, and um I've heard some of the criticism of it, but I just think it's a really beautiful, special, delicate film that touches on, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, the things that make us... Human and that make us, you know, feel alive, and um, what love is and what love isn't. Yeah. And it is cheesy, but if it was anyone but Guillermo, and he situates it, he you know, it it, it's very close to me in terms of um, what he achieved with something like Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth, where he situates this kind of seemingly simplistic story against the backdrop of a much more politically charged time. Mm. And so that kind of time element plays into itself and really, really wonderful performances by Sally Hawkins who as uh, lead actress in this film and she's a British actress and she's amazing. If, if you have seen The Shape of Water and you really like her, definitely check out a film called Happy Go Lucky. It, it's just a wonderful film and um, you just kind of see her vivaciousness come through in that and you see so much but yeah it's del toro so there's great creature designs there is heart there is magic there is like the scariest darkness okay Um, so it is scary um it's scary because people are terrible
1: oh the void of humanity scary Mm -hmm. gotcha yeah
0: Um, but it's wonderful and if it truly is one of those films that if you are interested and you haven't seen it cough cough andrea really recommend seeing on a big screen it's beautiful It's really, really beautiful.
1: It's not too late. I can do this. No.
0: So the top of my horror adjacent
1: list, another controversial pick. I know people were really divided on this, is Mother.
0: That's on mine, too. Is it really?
1: I'm happy to hear that. It was reviewed in the magazine by a writer who is also a filmmaker and... The review in the magazine, which was all I really let myself read, I knew that it was controversial and I didn't want to over-prepare before seeing it. But the writer for the magazine said that the metaphor is so heavy and in-your-face and it's a conceit that only great filmmakers can get away with, but all of that culminates to a subpar film. As much as I agree with that in principle, like when I read that I was like, I'm not going to like this film. I did. I did. And that is because the metaphor was tackled in such a perfect way. I don't know about you, Alex, but I kind of saw the film as two parts.
0: Yes. Two halves, oh, totally.
1: right? There's very totally. much. Uh, it's its almost like two movies in one. And yet I don't think I don't think the second could exist without the first. I don't think the first would matter as mm-hmm. much without the second.
0: And see, I, I went into the film knowing that, like, I'd read, I read again, I didn't read too much because I'm always interested in what Darren Aronofsky does. And I love so much of the cast, like. Jennifer Lawrence and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, holy oh. shit, I'm there. And I they like them both slay a Slay so hard. Not to mention Stephen McHattie. Yeah. Not to mention Kristen Wiig. And then there's, I believe it was shot in Montreal because I recognized a bunch of people I used to know from Montreal in the film. No way, as yeah. extras? Yeah, or like a small part, it's like That's having wild. one or two lines in the second part of the mm-hmm. film. But I'd read through the headlines and I just kept missing it. I didn't get a chance to see it in the theaters, so I had to watch it online. But I knew I'd read that it is basically just a metaphor. Yeah, So I went in expecting that. So yep. I was fine. But yeah, holy shit.
1: Even as far as films that are metaphors go, like if you were to compare this to The Neon Demon, it has way more of a narrative, mm-hmm. but it's still twice as abstract. It's really it's its own beast. I can definitely say that I enjoyed the first half more than the second, but they both affected me in very personal and introspective ways, and I'll be thinking about this movie for years, I'm sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So after I watched it, what I kind of like to do is I then like to go back and like read all the think pieces or mm-hmm. reviews or interviews with um, the cast and crew that I purposefully avoided so i saw uh, there was an interview with jennifer lawrence and she was referring to um someone was asking her like oh is this really a horror movie like what do you think Mm -hmm. and she she said something to the effect of you know i don't know if i can say whether it's a horror movie or not but i know we've been talking about it as a horror movie because that's how we wanted to prepare people Mm. to go in and see this film because we didn't know how else to talk about it and i thought that was a really Interesting idea, and I don't disagree with it because yeah. there are so many horrific, bizarre parts. Like, there were parts of that film which, to me, almost reached the level of martyrs. Yeah. And it, it just was like I was just, like, beside myself. There were parts of
1: that it. film that tapped into my nightmares in a way mm-hmm. that a straightforward narrative never could.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a fucked up thing it, to it, say. Perfect, like, perfect uh, analogy. It felt just like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It just it wouldn't it was unrelenting yeah. and I think a feat of that nature I think it deserves to be celebrated. Yeah. So I'm 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 a mother fan. Well you guys let us know because you know, we're
1: we're including it in our horror adjacent list. I would love to do an episode on I'd it. Totally There's a lot to unpack, it. but if it's not horror enough for you guys, maybe let us know what you yeah. think. We'd like to hear yeah, about yeah, give that. Us a shout I mean, ultimately we're gonna do what we want. Yeah. But um, yeah. no, but feel free to weigh in.
0: You you guys are like the kids in the back seat. That's right. And and we're both simultaneously driving the car while Andrea's dog r- rips apart the studio. Yeah. What does he have now?
1: What are you doing, Dante? What are you doing? You just wanted some attention. <laughs> God damn you're
0: cute. Oh. Um, okay, so the next kind of horror-adjacent film I'd like to give a shout-out to is The Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yorgos Lanthimos, and this is a director, writer-director who previously did a film called The Lobster, which I was kind of eh, on, I love the idea more than I love the actual film, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer is really fucked up, it's really fucking weird, but I dug it, I dug it a lot. I, I was actually it. infested more than I thought I was yeah. by the end of it. We did run a feature
1: of it in Rue Morgue, which is why I'm surprised to hear that it's on your horror adjacent. Like How I on mean, a scale was, of 1 to 10? Ah,
0: yeah. And I even saw it was in Mike Gingold's best of horror yeah
1: so yeah. it's one of those that's like it's, it's one genre of those,
0: like because i'm talking to you guys i'm talking to like horror fans yeah. out there so i know that you guys know so i wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable recommending it as like oh you want to see a fucking horror maybe watch the killing of a sacred deer with gotcha. colin farrell and Bill uh-huh. goodman um i would say knowing you know our listeners the way we've gotten to i wouldn't say this is straight horror but I would say it was something that you guys would probably be interested in. Right. It's it's like an art house Twilight Zone episode. Okay. All right. That's my log line for it.
1: Well, on the heels of that, my next pick for this weird category that we're inventing is a film called Low Life, and it's a film that I saw at the Fantasia Film Festival, and I saw it alongside Rodrigo Gudino, who is the publisher of *Rumorg*, and next to Gary Sherman, who is a British filmmaker who's had a prolific career, and um, at the end of the film, I was like, holy shit, I loved that, and Gary was just shaking his head, and he was like, it'll never sell and I was like, what are you talking about? That was amazing. Of course it's going to sell. And he's like, it defies categorization. Who's going to pick this up? How do you market a film like this? And I thought that was such an interesting perspective. And it's something that I've kind of had in my head ever since, especially when we think about festival films and we think about films that are so critically acclaimed and don't get picked up for wide yeah. distribution is sometimes it's because of marketing considerations like that. Mm-hmm. But low life is, uh, it has a kind of, Tarantino-esque flow in that there's a scenario and there's so many different players in the scenario and the film jumps back and forth in the narrative to show different players' circumstances and relationship to that scenario. With regard to whether or not it is horror, there's definitely some gore, there's a whole lot of violence, but there are jokes in this film. There are characters who got me in the feels as well as cracked me up. There's a luchador. There's a guy with a swastika tattooed on his face. There's a pregnant lady. There's there's all kinds of shit going on, and it's chaos, but it's hilarious and wonderful, and I really dug it.
0: Is it available, like for streaming or like VOD?
1: Not yet, as far okay. as I know. I mean, it was it was winning awards, yeah. in festivals. So I, it's got it's got to wind up at the, the very least on VOD. I would think. I
0: hope so. And guys, if it ever does come on VOD or we find out that it is magically, we'll post about it. Yes, yeah. I, I, I definitely want to see it. I remember you talking about it. Okay, the next one for me is a film, another film that Andrea and I saw together, Colossal. I have that on my list, too. You do? Yes, I do. So what I like to say about Colossal is I don't think Andrea had ever seen me ugly cry before. But oh, boy, did I ugly cry at the end of this film. Like, Shape of Water, when I finished that, it was like I had a couple, like, beautiful tears streaming down my face like Lauren on the hills. And my boyfriend was like, oh, are you sad because you're so pretty? And I'm like, I know, baby. But Colossal, the end of Colossal, it was full-on splotchy-faced ugly cry. And it's a story about Anne Hathaway's character who's kind of an alcoholic and she's trying to get her life back together. And then she discovers that she can manifest as a kaiju monster.
1: (laughs) That's, that's about all you can say it's about
0: all you can really say yeah. about it but it it really affected me and it, it spoke to a lot of things that I've dealt with and, and felt in my life and hence the ugly cry but um
1: yeah I felt like such a dick like the credits were rolling and you know like the lights are still down when the credits are rolling so I'm talking to her I'm like oh well what did you think of this and this and I this and this and this and that before I even looked at her and then I was like oh <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you a moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, it really is spectacular. The special effects are breathtaking and again, microaggressions, excellent script, excellent cast. Great movie. Yeah. Okay, I've got one more on my horror adjacent list, and this one I saw recently. It is Brawl in Cell Block 99. I didn't get down the director's name, but he's the same guy who did Bone Tomahawk, which was such a big source of frustration for me in previous years that, again, like, it's not quite horror enough to get it into the magazine, but it's still etched itself into my brain with such horrific ideas and imagery. Brawl and Cell Block 99 has its problems. I've got some problems with the plot and with the characterization, but in terms of jaw-dropping twists and turns and violence, it had me in the palm of its Brawl and Cell Block 99 hand.
0: Yeah, I saw that too. It didn't make it onto my list. There are parts of it I liked. I still feel that Bone Tomahawk, for all of its deeply deeply problematic issues makes a bit more sense and i feel like the director whose name i'm also choosing not to remember God at this damn. moment he he seems to want to play with notions of masculinity like Big old time. school masculinity and yep. i feel that brawl and Cell block 99 is kind of the take on a exploitation jail movie like from the 70s yep. it makes a bit more sense in the western format mm. and context also, I just have a preference for Kurt Russell and anything, and also, I fucking found out this guy, this director guy, is making a new film with Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson. Ain't no one gotta see Mel Gibson.
1: No. What, like, is that going to be the new ballsy move, just to like now everybody's boycotting these
0: actors, and I'm then is the backlash going to be Lord, that I cast Mel Gibson? Yeah, and yeah. And and they're um. Danny found this out. They're cops who've been charged with being bad cops or something being racist yeah or something like that or they had something lobbed against them and I don't want Mel Gibson anywhere near my movies anymore yeah trouble proceed with caution yeah okay I've got two movies left and they're both like kind of muted female narratives ooh what a shocker that I like those first one is a bit of a shocker because I usually don't like this filmmaker but this was actually very impressive to me The Beguiled didn't see it by Sofia Coppola also starring Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst, who I adore. It's uh, and I think the strength of this film that it is a kind of lean 90 minutes. It really clips along. It's dark. It's tragic. It is a remake of a film that I actually really want to see now. I haven't seen it also by the same name. And um, yeah, if you were intrigued by what you heard, I would definitely recommend checking it out. I was pleasantly surprised by this one, and, and how invested I became in it. And then my final film that I wanted to mention to everyone is a film called Personal Shopper by Olivier S.A.S. and Monsieur S.A.S. He, I, I kind of first became aware of him when I was writing my New French Extremity book, and I wrote about a film of his called Demon Lover, which is so crazy. It maybe makes sense. I still don't know, but I absolutely loved it. Demon Lover is a very strange film, but uh, if you're interested in New French Extremity, I definitely recommend it. And he made a film a couple years ago called The Clouds of Sils Maria, which is much more of a straightforward drama starring Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. And this was kind of her anti-Hollywood film. And she plays... um Julia Binoche, who's this kind of really famous actress in the film, her personal assistant and the kind of relationship they have. It is a good film. It's it's very straightforward, I found, for SAS in many ways. And then Personal Shopper stars Kristen Stewart as a personal shopper to a very rich and famous actress and uh, kind of deals with uh, this pseudo ghost story that's happening all around her and this kind of male violence that's happening around her. And um I was really excited for it. I've heard mixed things about it, but for me it had a kind of languid pace and for me languid pace is work when I feel like there's a steady hand on the wheel. Mm. You know, and and I felt like this film definitely had it. Um there aren't a lot of clear conclusions or endings in the film, so if you like those, I don't think you're going to find that in this film, but Personal Shopper, it's different. It's interesting. It's very French nice cool well we're gonna what sorry oh what i feel like we have some stuff to talk about that hasn't been mentioned what the big i.t in the room oh yeah you'll notice that the highest grossing horror
1: film of history to date did not make our list and look guys I, i i didn't hate it when it comes to it it is my favorite novel of all time. I really love the miniseries in spite of its many glaringly apparent foibles. And this film had everything going up against it. It's tackling a subject matter that is really hard to visualize. It's topping a miniseries that did very well and lives in fans' hearts. It had a very storied production history, as most of you know, with Carrie Fukunaga being involved and then not being involved and it getting pushed back and this and this and that. I didn't hate it, but hype aside, I I found it middling at best.
0: I would agree with that, and I would say I'm not really a Stephen King fan. I I just didn't grow up reading his stuff the way that Andrea did, um, the way that several people close to me have. So I kind of Took it with a grain of salt. And yeah, I, I would say um, to Andrea's point, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm not angry at it. I think it has some weird shit in it that I wish was different. I almost wish I could edit it. Oh, yeah. I feel like amazing. I could make it good. Well, you wouldn't totally sideline the one black character, so that'd it, be nice. Th- there's
1: that. There's there's a couple of scenes that needed to be cut. There was a, uh, a couple I, of scenes. I think scenes. It, it would benefit from a good, hard edit, which, again, I, I feel weird criticizing a film for that. Because, again, that's, uh, that's a different team than the team who put it all together. But anyway.
0: But yeah, we, I just wanted to make sure we talked about that because we did get a lot of questions about it. And, and for me personally, a film that I got a lot of questions about was the film Raw. Which was uh, a new French kind of—is it a new French extremity kind of film? Is it, Alex? Will you write a second edition of your book, Alex? Just for that one film. Just for that one film. It's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, for me, I've seen it. I saw it twice actually this year. I mean, I spoke about it at a screening at the Royal Cinema here in Toronto that was presented by Vice, which is a really lovely experience. And I think it's a good film. I think it is a good film. It didn't affect me in the way that new French extremity films have which is like that sickening deep dark feeling that you have in yourself and you have it and then you're like oh my god the darkness in me sees the darkness in you no and and to be totally honest if I was writing the book today I would have included something about Raw in it as it is now I'm I feel a bit ambivalent to it but I definitely recommend if you're interested in it it's not a bad film it just didn't reach me and um, basically all the films I talked about for the last however long we've gone on, have really reached me, so. We've gone on a long time. So we're going to take
1: a quick break, we're going to give you some bloopers, and then we're going to move on to some of your questions. So enjoy the belching.
0: Pop, pop. Hi, everyone. Oh, my God. Sweet <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, now, uh, w- do you want to start? No, you start. Okay.
1: Meanwhile... <clears throat>
0: you thanks and they show them shall so the fact that it's
1: just a bunch of hetero girls really growing down for lack of a better term
0: i don't want to say that at all hmm are you gonna put a pickaxe through my leg later okay
1: the actress who played Shara. the actress who played sarah sean oh, fuck off <laughs> glug 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 uh didn't glug it tinkled yeah. I've never been spelunking either, but I play an awful lot of Minecraft, and I found that to be accurate.
0: What I think The Descent does really brilliantly, really brilliant, really brilliantly. Oh my god. <laughs> Holy. Ooh, goo, gooey. Swallow your wine and
1: your chips.
0: Let's lock ourselves in this room and never come out. You think you're so fucking cool. Just chewing your gut. chips. I'm just so
1: chips. happy. I've got crunchy, salty grease in my mouth. This is even better than the looking forward to the chips part, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Stop fart shaming me. I'm not! You're doing it to yourself! Oh, that's fart culture rhetoric. Her gender means that she's not physically as strong, she's not fully able to protect herself from the holy grail that is her Gina.
0: <laughs> I think you mean Gina. I just thought it was like... A saying you had that I hadn't like heard in the five years we've been friends. No, and it was weird because like I was like, What? You never heard it. me say vagina? You know, that's Magina's what I call it. bleeding.
1: I don't see those rapes as titilizing or eroticized in the slightest. Do you mean titillating? What did I say?
0: Titilizing. Fuck.
1: That is going to be our my... April. I have an announcement. We need more wine! We are out of wine, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, send yeah. wine. But, we're not here to talk about video games proper. We're here to talk about
0: blue. V- and there's a- My name is Alice, and I remember everything. But I don't say that until the sequel. But then I can't stop saying it in all the other sequels.
1: I think I saw the first three in theaters. The last one I saw in theaters was Extinction. Emphasis on the stink.
0: The hive security system known as the Red Queen... No. The hive security system known as the Wed... Wow. Members of the team are killed by the Wed... The Wed. The Wed Queen, she's Wed. <laughs> the Wheel Wheel rabbit. Weskily.
1: So the first Silent Evil game came out in... Silent ni- Evils. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think it also... I think Chris's storyline is... Oh, hmm.
0: I think through all the veering off... Oh, no, wait. I want to talk about Centralia. Some what? Centralia. Yeah. Oh, baby girl. Hold on to your panties. I'm drunk on two sips of MGD. Amazing. So yeah. <laughs> mm.
1: Those are the best chips I've ever had. Are
0: they? The Ruffles
1: I think it's because they're like a little bit
0: grease. past their best before date. Ah, so they're like kind of dry.
1: Yeah, I got that stale factor. Ooh. You know me and my stale snacks. Love that shit. I'm sorry, I thought you said stale snatch. Stale snatch, you know me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cobwebs. Aowama and Asami go to a seaside hotel where Aowama. Te- where Aowama. Where Aowama. And- Wow. you're saying it. That's not what I you're know. Saying. I keep saying <laughs> it, and then it. like my mouth like melts off me. He takes a lot of risks, but with a really firm hand and a clear idea to fully articulate this really straight. <laughs> we should talk about the journey. We should talk about how
1: Aoyama is Aoyama. Now I'm doing it.
0: There's a lot of guys out there who are looking for good girls. Uh, nice one. That wasn't a good girl. I think one of the things audition reflects so well because it spends a disproportionate amount of time with Aoyama uh, is because e- you need to oh, keep Aoyama. Aoyama.
1: Aoyama. I also think it's interesting that Aoyama's Aoyama. <laughs> My interpretation of the ending is Aoyama. Wow. I don't believe this. This is
0: so unfair. All right. We are back with a section we are going to really creatively call general questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And These questions came from you guys. We put a call out on Twitter and Facebook and just wanted to know what you guys wanted us to talk about and if you had any questions and queries for us. So I've kind of put them together. I did takes them out because some of them were just repetitive you guys are asking really great questions but you're all hitting some of the same notes so if you don't hear your question it's not that we didn't see it it's not that we didn't read it it just fell into something else yeah and also you're not getting paid for this so (laughs) neither are we (laughs) okay so the first question comes from jade benoit In 2017, Get Out and It were two of the most successful and lucrative films of the year. Seeing as they were also horror films that everyone, even those that don't typically engage in horror films, wanted to see, what do you think this says about the current trends in horror? This is especially interesting to me, considering there is so much talk of Get Out being a possible Oscar contender. Wow. Well, you know, it was interesting, maybe we'll link this in the show notes as well. But I was on a TIFF podcast, the Toronto International Film has a podcast called Long Takes. And the two hosts of that show have on kind of experts in the industry to talk about various elements of the industry. And uh, they asked me very kindly to be on an episode the very beginning of November, talking about this very question, why is horror doing so well? What is it about the climate right now that speaks to horror and horror fans and people who aren't normally associating with horror. And I was on the show with uh, Peter Kaplowski, who is the Midnight Madness programmer at TIFF. And, you know, to me, what's interesting about 2017 is that, uh, you know, we get it every year, I feel like uh, a horror film will do really well. And people are like, Oh, my God, I didn't know horror was so lucrative. And it's like, rinse, wash, repeat. Yeah, It happens again and again. And 2017 was interesting because we had that in February with Get Out. And then we had it again in September with It. Yeah, And um I just think horror is a really lucrative genre. And It was a blockbuster in so many ways, I think, because it had such an in throughout the type of horror that it was. It yes. was like a big, scary clown. It was kids against this big, scary clown. It had 80s nostalgia to it. It was... A real kind of gateway entry point mm-hmm. for a real understanding, a really accessible understanding of horror. Yep. And Get Out was a film that I think had been needing to be made for a really long time. That's right. And we just got very lucky in someone having someone in the industry like Jordan Peele, who not only had the access to all of these incredible things, uh, like getting into Blumhouse and making this film by his own standards, but you know having the talent to do it as well. Right. I think
1: it came out with a huge marketing push, a humongous marketing budget that we don't see a lot of in horror. So it is kind of its own beast with regard to that. I think Get Out would have performed exceptionally well no matter when it came out. But the fact that it's coming out during a time of great political upheaval, great civil unrest, tapping into subjects that are very hot right now it, same with MFA and same mm-hmm. with revenge I think these are great films in their own right but there's a timeliness mm-hmm. and I don't think that they were like oh this is happening now is the time to put this film out I think there's just a, a certain amount of serendipity involved and for horror fans like Alex and I to witness the media suddenly becoming cognizant of horror as the critical and essential genre that it is it, it's it's almost a bit of an eye roll it's mm-hmm. just like wow welcome to to the club, like you just woke up. Yeah. I, I think the aftermath of these films is there's going to be a lot of people trying to emulate the formula. I don't think that they will succeed because I think Get Out was very much a passion project, it was clearly very close to the filmmaker's heart and it tapped into something that was happening in culture. Like I said, I think we can expect a lot of imitation, but um. But that's that's how the cycle goes in horror, is something comes out, it's hot, wash, rinse, repeat, like Alex said. So another question we want to address comes from Terry Lynn, and that is, what is one horror movie, regardless of quality, I love that she included that, that you can watch over and over again, does it hold a special nostalgia for you? I think that's a great question, I love how it address regardless of quality, sometimes it's the stinkers that just stick in your craw. What did you put? Pet Cemetery too. Perfect example, regardless of quality. (laughs) You love that
0: one. I love that movie. I love that movie so much and I guess it does have a place of nostalgia for me because when they would do AMC Fear Fest on the channel they wound up playing a a lot of good stuff. They also play a lot of clunkers and one of the things that they played was Pet Cemetery 2 and I was always intrigued by it because I was still so terrified of Mm -hmm. the original Mm -hmm. that there was this other version that I could kind of watch and engage with and it was fun and it was silly and it was campy and it was over the top and I absolutely adore that film. And it has gone from being what I used to say was like one of my favorite guilty pleasures mm. to a film I actually think is for what it is, really well-made and well-acted and um, has has a lot of quality to it, uh, even though I know a lot of people think it's very silly. But in terms of what I would say is now my favorite guilty pleasure horror film, uh, I think that would be Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Mm. A little Paul Rudden there.
1: Yeah, that one had a nice uh, resurgence mm-hmm, with due the to that producer's cut. cut. Yeah, it's kind of a fun one. For me... A horror movie that you can watch over and over again. I will have kind of waves where "Eh, it's been a long time since I've seen this. so I'll bust it down and then I won't revisit it for a couple of years. It's especially true of stuff that we do for faculty of horror because I feel like after we've rewatched it, pulled it to shreds, I've discussed it with Alex. I kind of feel like I've conquered it and I know it so well that I don't need to rewatch it very often. But to answer this question, I put uh, Evil Dead 2. Never disappoints. It's really easy to come back to because it's the perfect film to throw on when you can't decide between watching something scary and watching something funny and lighthearted. It's always fun. No matter what the circumstance, I can half watch it. I can watch it and pay attention. And it's still great. Great replayability value.
0: Evil Dead 2. Nice. So Troy asks, what horror movie slash franchise would you most want to star in? It's far from the best
1: horror franchise in the world. It's funny that we actually mentioned it already, but I'd love to star in a Resident Evil movie. Nice. Uh, As far as female protagonists in horror go, you know, there's Final Girls and there's Scream Queens and all that is great. But I would love to learn martial arts and learn how to shoot guns and do some crazy parkour. She's a very Mm -hmm. like kind of an action hero in a horror movie. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of one I'd want to star in.
0: Yeah, I, um, oh, gosh, it'll be such a shocker to so many people, especially people in this room. But I would just, like, my goal in life is to be like Sidney Prescott in Scream. Knew it. You fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. Uh, and and what, sure what a great thing,
1: right? Like, if they did make another Scream, to have a horror journalist in it. Yeah. Guys, make this happen. It would be
0: like the perfect blend between Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers. Not to
1: mention your Nev Campbell impersonation. Like you could play a Sydney Prescott. I
0: I do do a decent Nev Campbell impression, <laughs> but I charge for that. So if you guys want to see it, you gotta like we'll we'll do some webcamming. Yeah, no, that never works out. We'll oh, crowdfund. We'll crowdfund. That always uh, works. Uh, we'll, I'll I'll do like a touring show of my like thirty second Nev Campbell impression. Yeah, but yeah, I love those movies. I love those movies so much. I basically read a book about them. Coming spring twenty eighteen.
1: Uh, another question we got, what celebrity are you most excited about having
0: met? I legit didn't have an answer for this. Oh, no. I haven't met that many celebrities. I just walked by Scott Speedman at a TIFF party once. That was thrilling. <laughs> um, yeah. Any talk of
1: celebrity in horror is kind of funny because horror is such its own community and subculture that, you know, I can go on about blah, 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 and then I met Barbara Crampton, and I don't expect non-horror people to get excited about stuff like that, but horror people
0: will. You know what? I literally just have an answer now. What? Having said all of that. Okay, okay. It would be Tony Todd.
1: Tony Todd is an excellent answer, because what a magnificent man.
0: And I met him after, it was during Fan Expo, few years ago, mm-hmm. and Remorg was having kind of their after party, and Andrea or someone very kindly guided me into the VIP area. And I, I, um, was with an ex-boyfriend we were dating at the time, but I was with him at the time, and so he was at the party with us. And I was like, Oh my God, that's Candyman! Holy shit! And my then-boyfriend was like, oh, he's also been in other movies. I was like, you shut your fucking mouth. He's been in a 100,000 other movies. He literally His has. filmography is staggering. Yeah. And I went up to the bar, and he was there, and he was kind of in the middle of, like, he'd been talking to some people and taking a break and just went back to the bar and I just said like hi Mr. Todd I'm a really big fan it's really cool that you're here and he was like oh that's so nice thank you so much what's your name and I was like my name's Alex he's like that's my son's name that's so cool (laughs) you want to do a shot with me and I was like yes I do Tony Todd and we did a shot and he shook my hand and he was absolutely lovely and he turned around and had like 10 more people he had to talk to but uh, what a joyous person to be around I can guarantee
1: that he gave every single fan that day, that amount of consideration Ugh. and what's your name and thank you so much. So happy to meet a fan. He's really lovely. I got to hang out with him. It was the most random horror event. There's a scream park, Bingaman Scream Park, <laughs> it's outside of Toronto. It's in like Kitchener or Guelph or something, right. some non-existent place and... um and yeah, he was there, and he was a special guest, and not only did I get to hang out with him, but we went through one of those like cheesy haunted houses together, oh, cool. and he was engaging with all the performers and all the, <laughs> you want to get a picture with the fucking candy man? Sure do. He was lovely. My answer for this was, I met Rose McGowan very, very, very briefly, and it was before I was really involved with Rue I was there recording panels for feedback for the Rue podcast, and I was recording hers, and... It was just a bit after Planet Terror, and I just remember at the time there was a lot of criticism about her face. Right. She would gotten plastic surgery, yeah. and so everybody was like, "Ugh, she barely looks like her anymore." Ugh, she was. In, why is she even here? She was in fucking Charmed, and so there was already that kind of like simmering in the background that I was like, "Fuck you all! I love Planet Terror. I love Rose McGowan." And I caught up with her very, very briefly after her official Q and A, and I asked. Her, I felt like I only had one. Question that I could ask her. And I asked her about the status of the Barbarella remake that was being buzzed about because Barbarella is a huge, huge film to me. I never talk about it because I never get the chance because it's not a horror film. It's not even horror adjacent. It's just a really (laughs) weird blip in my horror loving history, in my film loving history. And she was with Robert Rodriguez at the time, and her answer for it was I'm down, man. It's the powers that be that just don't like me. And She has a way of talking about how people shit on her. She doesn't feel sorry for herself. She knows exactly why. She knows exactly what she is. And she knows why Hollywood just craps on her. And there's something very tragic about that. But there's also something very inspiring about that, especially in light of how vocal she's been lately. I really wish I could have talked to her more intimately or gotten a photo or something. And uh, it was a split second in her life, but a big deal in mine.
0: Very cool. So Katrina asks, make some 2018 predictions on horror trends, then you can revisit them next year. That's a really, that, that's a fun idea. Yeah. I think, and I hope, we're going to see increased diversity in front of the camera as well as behind the camera. Uh, I think there has been, you know, not only from Get Out, but also several other films we also mentioned earlier in the episode, the diversity of voices is so important, and it's the only way we're going to have a diversity of stories. And, you know, uh, uh, there will always be a place for, you know, the slasher film, the monster film, all of those things you go see with a bucket of popcorn on a Saturday night with some friends. I'm always down for those, but I also want to see the horror that fucks me up because it shows me something I've only kind of heard about or that I've lived that hasn't been spoken about. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, really hopeful that, again, films like Get Out, films like MFA, films like Revenge will allow studios to take chances like that. I'm also, you know, concerned that there will be a lot of kind of paint by numbers copies of those because there's such purity in those stories and they come from such a true and honest place and they're so well done. You know, so that's that's my concern, but that's also my prediction. I think due to the success of it, we're going to see uh, a lot of Stephen King yeah, adaptations. So hot right now, as well as the wave of eighties nostalgia, which was not only done by it because that was parroting Stranger Things.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, the 80s nostalgia thing, that's, I, I predict that this year is going to run that straight into the ground. I think Stranger Things is already kind of petering out in the nostalgia factor. I hated season two. I know you hated season two. I didn't hate season two, but I feel like it leaned too heavily on the nostalgia factor to carry it. Whereas that wasn't, it was fun in the first season, but it wasn't what it was fundamentally mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um, so I hope they kind of get that straight. I predict that the new Cloverfield will be good. I predict that the new Halloween will be bad. And, uh, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, the new Halloween film. Like, I will go see that. I will go see that no matter what, pretty much. Of course. And everyone will, which is why it doesn't need to be good. Yeah. It just, you know, it's one of those films that, uh, you know, the more I've heard talk about it, it's like Jamie Lee Curtis is back. And, you know, it's going to deal with, like, her PTSD. And she's going to have a kid. And it's going to affect them. And I'm like... Yeah, it's great. I saw that in Halloween H2O. Yeah. Which is also a really solid movie. So, that's cool. Like, did we all just collectively forget that Halloween H2O happened? When you think
1: about Halloween, like, the original Halloween was the indie film that, against all odds, became a cult classic. You cannot replicate that Mm -hmm. formula with all the remakes in the world, with all the money in the world, with all the John Carpenter signing off on it, with all the Jamie Lee Curtis coming back, with all the Danny McFucking Bride. Okay,
0: yeah. Here's some shit about Danny McBride. I'm not breaking any news here, but it's like, oh my god, he was in Alien Covenant. Another film we shockingly didn't mention in our best of 2017. That's cool. But again, another film that I saw
1: just because I needed to see because I have to. So it made its money. It won.
0: And you know what? I like a lot of things. And I'm a big (laughs) fan of a lot of things. Just because I am and I like these other things does not mean I should be permitted to do them. But you know what? As I said before in this episode... I hope that I'm proven wrong. I hope I like buy my ticket to the new Halloween film, with my popcorn and my drink and I sit down and I'm totally terrified and transported. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but I will always give this the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, I'm open to it. I'm o- I'd love to be wrong. Yes, that is my contract with this film, with every film I watch is that I will remain open to it mm-hmm. until it proves me wrong. But also, you know what, Danny McBride? Sit down. Another fun question from Troy. Troy wants to know what the worst haircut the other ever got. Mine was actually last year. The worst haircut I ever got was in 2017. And I don't think you knew this because I got it at the beginning of summer. And it's because I've been growing my bangs out. And uh, I go to this amazing hairstylist. She is the best. But I have to book in with her a couple weeks in advance. And uh, so I just didn't have time to do it. My hair is getting really puffy in the humidity sure some people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so anyway, so I book in with this, you know, really nice hair salon that's near me where I live in Toronto. And I can get in. It's a bit more than I usually pay. But I'm like, that's fine if they can take care of this mop. And so they cut my hair and I'm like, go home. And I'm like, OK, this is fine. And then I'm just finding like all these jagged edges in it. Aww. And I was like, oh, no. And then it just become like this square on my head. But thankfully, it was summer. So I always wore my hair up. But I eventually uh, at some point in the summer, I went back to my original hairstylist. And I messaged her. And I was like, Sarah, I have to book in with you. And she started just, like, combing through my hair and, like, looking at it. And she was just doing this thing where she would hold up sections of my hair and just laugh. Yeah. Like, not what in a mean way, it? but she was like, what the fuck was this? <laughs> Who did this to you? I want a name. Oh, that's funny. I don't remember you it complaining was so, about hating I, I haircut. Was, You know, it's because I was, like, legit ashamed. Wow. I was so embarrassed by this haircut. Well, and You won't make
1: that mistake again.
0: No. I, it was it was so bad. I considered going on, like, Yelp or something to, like, write a review. but. Yeah. I didn't, because I felt bad. I don't know why.
1: My worst haircut was uh, grade nine. I buzzed my hair all off to look like Ryan Tunney in Empire Records. Nice. It didn't really turn out that way. My hair is very thick Mm -hmm. and wiry, so it was horribly awkward to grow back out. I kind of looked like a chia pet for a long time. You know, like sometimes when people get a buzz cut, it's just kind of like it's a punk rock little fuzz of hair. But I had like it was like a carpet. It was like moss. And uh, I also have a really small head, which is partially why I look really good in hats. And, yeah, that was a mistake I will make again.
0: Whoops. Is there photo evidence or have you burned all of them?
1: Uh, I could probably find something. Uh, I think we but should, I won't. No, no, I burned them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they don't exist. Don't look for them.
0: Uh, so Robert asks, what horror remakes are you most afraid will ever get made? Many horror classics have already gotten remade with somewhat awful results like The Omen, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, to name a few. Are movies such as The Exorcist in a no-touch status, or would you welcome a remake, and if so, by who? You know, one film that I love, but I, I would absolutely love to see a remake, but not the remake I think they're going to make, Mm-mm. is Pet Cemetery. Mm. And for a long time, Guillermo del Toro expressed interest in doing a Pet Cemetery remake, and holy shit, can you imagine Doug Jones as Zelda? <sighs> You think they'd waste Doug Jones on Zelda? Well, he's... Like, that's what they did in, like, Crimson Peak and yeah. as, like, this, like, deformed mother. And I was uh-huh. just like... Like, that's a part of Crimson Peak that really creeped me out. But again, I, I think Pet Cemetery, it's one of the few Stephen King books I've read. And I really, really liked it. And I, I think the story is so ripe. So much that's in there. And I think the original... Absolutely has its place. I think there's so many great things about it. Obviously, it was super affecting on me. But um I, I would love to see it, if only to be done with a better actor as Lewis Creed. Oh. You know, just having like a really strong, present, charismatic actor yeah. in that lead role to make you really go on this journey with him. Right. So that would be mine. But uh, in terms of most getting afraid of getting remade, like... um. You know, I perish the thought of, like, Candyman getting remade. Ooh, good one. Because, and and I know I I meet people who don't like Candyman, and I'm like, I don't know how to talk to you anymore.
1: I hope nobody fucks with *Night of the Living Dead* again. Mm. When George Romero passed, and it's been, we probably should mention that if this is a year in review episode, that we lost Toby Hooper and George Romero this year, and so it was kind of a, it was kind of a wallop for horror. And I kind of feel like *Night of the Living Dead* is is sacred and 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 shouldn't be touched again. But now that George has passed, I feel like people are going to kind of want to maybe ape on that and uh, i am aware that there is an existing remake and i'm not necessarily mad at tom savini's remake i think it was interesting but uh, it should really it should really be left alone and i think the zombie subgenre has gone through many permutations in the last you know 30 40 some odd years mm-hmm. and that's fine but um, but i hope night of the living dead is, is is left alone for for what it was and for what it was saying about its time And I think I've said it before in another assessment episode, but I would love a proper remake of Flowers in the Attic. Mm. I say it again and again and again, and fuck, maybe they'll put one out and I'll still be saying it. Just do it right. I feel like incest is the one taboo that horror is still tap dancing around and doesn't want to dive into, and maybe for good reason, but I don't know. I find it scary. I also wouldn't mind seeing a high-budget version of The Stand now that Mm. we're all kind of in a bit of a Stephen King frenzy. You know, for the longest time, Stephen King was like, nope, fuck Hollywood. They butchered The Shining, which I'm going to scratch my head about until the end of time. (laughs) But um, if if we are going to have this resurgence and we are going to look at some of his epics that need a high-budget version – the stand would be my choice. Well, I,
0: I feel like you're gonna have to wait a while for that, considering how much uh, the Dark Tower shut the bed. Bye. it did. But then look at it.
1: And what else? There was a uh, Gerald's game performed well enough. Uh,
0: well, from whatever Netflix says. Yeah, they I know. Don't don't those numbers. The
1: stand would need
0: a massive budget. You know, Ben Affleck was gonna direct that. Fuck. He that. was in development with it. Gross. Maybe his idiot brother can go die in it. Lizzie Walker asks, would you ever co-write a book on horror together? If so, what would your subject matter be? We actually flirted with this idea a bit. Yeah. Uh, We talked
1: about it, but but our idea was for an anthology-type book with essays contributed by other people. And in retrospect, I think that that's maybe – Because we'd love to have more diverse voices on our show, but at the same time, we love being able to have the level of intimacy that we do in the studio and it's just the two of us going back and forth. That's part of the reason we don't have a lot of guests, but we do love hearing other viewpoints and would love to be able to give them a platform that the podcast can offer.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's a tricky one because we definitely were talking about it for a bit, and then it just kind of... As we got into different opportunities, both separately and together, it just kind of fell off the radar. And then for me, writing has always been a really solitary effort. Mm. And I always feel like I'm a bit of a lone wolf in many, many ways. So podcasting is one of the few truly collaborative things I do. And I'm even more protective of the kind of intimacy that Andrea and I have when we do the podcast because we've gotten it down to an art that we can do it and we can look at each other and do, like, shorthand and get it together. And just like with writing, like, I'm – even though I'm a writer, I'm I'm very nervous about my writing. And so I like to kind of fuck up on my own. I like to succeed on my own. I don't ever want to put my anxiety or my issues with my writing on anyone else. So Mm. it's not something I'd ever rule out. It would just have to – we'd have to hit on the right topic, and I don't know if we have. No. And then
1: finally, this is something that comes up a lot, is people are like, I love the show. You've got to expand. You've got to put it on YouTube. You've got to get on video. You've got to do this and this and that. And we, you know, it's uh, the minute it starts feeling like work, it's not going to be the same.
0: Totally. And, um, you know, one of the few, one of the many reasons, actually, I was interested in doing a podcast is because, you know, as women, we're so on display in society. Mm -hmm every goddamn moment we're outside of our own bedrooms, it feels like. And so podcasting is really great because you guys are forced to just listen to us if you choose to. You absolutely don't have to. So it it just feels like we could, you know, again, be in our pajamas or be in ball gowns and and do it and so to do Salem Horror Fest to bring that up again that was like nerve wracking but I'm 100% glad we did it it was exactly the right place to do it with you know the exactly the right time but it is something that I'm so passionate about this podcast and I'm so passionate about the work we do but I want to be really protective of it so you know and, and at the same token you know Andrea and I have a career together and we also have separate careers so we have to be really respectful of each other's time and, and how we work together and all the things like that so You know, I think doing something is doing more. Like, there are some months we barely get this podcast out.
1: Yeah, and as much as we love and appreciate that you want more, um, we're not going to give it to you. We're going to keep you thirsty. So (laughs) thirsty. So our next question comes from Lori. Who would be the final girl in a horror movie, Alex or Andrea? And
0: why? Me, I would be the final girl.
1: That's what I said, too.
0: And I would never murder Andrea. But if I was in a situation where they were like, one of you has to be the final girl, I would have already stabbed Andrea. Really? Yeah. That's like my life goal.
1: I think if it got to there, I think if it came down to a you or me and you came at me, I, I kind of think you'd be toast. But um, Probably. I'm Yes. But uh, but I did I did still say you I, I you're definitely more resourceful. Um <laughs> I'm way too hot-headed to be a final
0: girl. I think my death scene would be spectacular. Uh maybe a bit embarrassing. No, you'd be like the character. You'd be like Tatum in Scream. You'd be like Rose McGowan in Scream. You'd be like the character that everyone was like, "Ah, she's so great. We love her so much and she died, but God damn it, she went down fighting." Yeah. Yeah. Lupus asks, do you think there's a possible reading of American Psycho as a queer text, something about coming to terms with sexuality and internalized homophobia? Just thinking about the victims, the scene in the bathroom at the end in the 80s context, also Bret Easton Ellis, I guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Um, there is, you know, I'm sure a whole sub-school of thought in American Psycho yes. that has to do with the uh, queer reading of it. and." Um, that was something that um, I don't think we really tapped into in the live episode because we had so many other topics to talk about. Oh, yeah. We almost ran out of time. Yeah. Too. And and it's one of those things that, again, we're trying to be really sensitive in terms of we don't want to appropriate anyone else's voice. Mm-hmm. We will draw attention when we think we have the capability to do it and we don't want to leave anything out so it's always a fine line we're playing and also when we did the American Psycho episode which I absolutely love how it turned out um, we also didn't like have those beats between us to be like oh what about this and can we do that we couldn't really totally go off topic mm-hmm. in the way we sometimes do mm-hmm. off-mic. But yeah, 100%, I think there is a lot of, you know, gay panic and gay anxiety mm-hmm. uh, in the film and in the book. Brett Easton Ellis is a very, I think, as I mentioned in the episode, a very, very interesting figure who has kind of, at some points from what I've read, used his, his sexuality and then stayed very far away from it. Like, it's interesting to me that he wrote uh, the book that I mentioned in the episode, Lunar Park, this kind of fake memoir, where he purports to be straight, but he's not straight in real life. And and so there's just – there's a lot of kind of uh, stuff going on with that. But I think definitely uh, given the 80s, panic around AIDS, the blatant homophobia that is within the book, if it had been written by anyone else other than a gay man, fuck, we'd be there with like pitchforks and torches. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean and even just more broadly, do I think there's a possible –
1: queer reading of American Psycho that's up to you Mm -hmm. if your reading of it is queer then there is a queer reading if you can defend it Mm -hmm. is there a feminist reading of this is there a racial meaning of that like that's what this show is about entirely is celebrating different readings and different perspectives you can pull out of text and they are all valid and they are all interesting to me at least so our next question comes from C Dawson. Do you feel the absence of female characters had any impact, positive or negative, on Rare Exports? I think the absence of a maternal figure in Pietari's household was deliberate in that it uh, it emphasized his relationship with his dad and indeed it emphasized his differences from his tough hunter of a father who is pretty much the embodiment of masculinity. All the men who are reindeer hunting in that community are very masculine. There's a lot of boys. Whereas Pieterie is a very bookish, timid boy. So did it have an impact? Yeah, I think what bothers me Is when there is a token female character as a love interest who's clearly written in just to just to be eye candy or something. It's
0: it's the female Smurf syndrome.
1: If the story doesn't need a woman, then it doesn't need a woman. And that's fine. And that's true of the thing. Like, you know, even another film we've tackled on this podcast,
0: Calvair. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm all for the Bechdel test, but there are some stories that just don't necessitate it. And that's fine. I would much rather see a film with all male protagonists that doesn't have the female Smurf figure than see someone shoehorned in. Right. Yeah. And that's not properly explained or explored because there are so many implications when you're the only female in a group of men. Right. Oh, and here's something to follow up on an earlier comment I kind of made. Sean asks, would you classify Personal Shopper as a horror movie? No, Sean. I would classify it as horror adjacent. I will say <laughs> there are a couple of scenes in that film where I was like, "Ah, that's, that's a little scary." And there's a couple like little like creepy, jumpy, scare things which I actually thought were really well done. But they're they're very minimal. So no. I- wouldn't, it, it's one of those hard things, like, I feel like as a horror fan and, and writer and, and all of those things, I'm always pleased for any film to take on the horror moniker. I would never be like, no, personal shopper is not a horror film. If you think it's a horror film, you go, you run with that. But for me, I think it contains horror elements while not delivering on many of the promises of horror. So that's why I would never want to say to anyone, oh, mm-hmm. this is a horror film because then I think it sets up unrealistic expectations. I actually found that quite a bit with um another film I mentioned earlier, Raw. And um yeah. for me, I, I mean, Raw, I think it's gotten a great reception. I think it's doing very well for um the way it's been released and distributed. But uh, when it had its premiere, I believe in 2016 at TIFF Midnight Madness in North America, someone like fainted in the audience mm-hmm. because it was so fucking gory and like – Every headline I read about Raw when it came out was like, this is the most fucked up, gory horror film you will ever see. And as a horror fan and a horror connoisseur, it's really not that gory. There were definitely a couple scenes where I was like, but those scenes were definitely not the ones I think horror fans would associate Mm -hmm. with that. It has to do with the bikini line for anyone who's seen it. But it's, um, you know, I think putting the moniker of horror film onto a film can set up unrealistic expectations yeah yeah so I, I tend to be kind of careful with that I don't ever want to say something is horror that would make it a disservice to the film
1: oh well, yeah and horror and non-horror is a blurry line to begin with but it's a different blurry line within the horror community than it is without the horror community within the wider scope of cinema like it, it's really hard to substantiate that and I'm saying that as editor of a horror magazine. What makes it in? What makes it out? So if anything, as horror journalists, I feel like we're kind of gatekeepers of that blurry line. But, um, but I don't like to take a hard stance. Yeah. I don't think we should.
0: Yeah. So. So this is another question from C Dawson. How do you classify films like Cannibal Holocaust? Does it have any relevance today, especially given Logan Paul vlog of late? My first thought was how similar the response and actions were to the film crew during the quote unquote poll scene. So I only read a couple articles about this Logan Paul person. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me feel very old and also like, damn those kids. But yeah, Cannibal Holocaust is definitely, I would say, a precursor, forerunner to the found footage genre. It's it's an interesting mix of scripted scenes with quote-unquote found footage scenes. Mm -hmm. So it's distancing and up close and personal, kind of back and forth, which I find actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's definitely a really interesting archaeological fact of the horror and genre film. I think it has more to say about the Mondo film genre or subgenre than it does about... Filmmaking at that time, maybe, like, through and through. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, uh, Logan Paul sounds like an asshat, and I don't like him. Mm -hmm. And he can go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, I also didn't watch the Logan Paul video. I followed the story a little bit, but... um I don't want to get too much into it, but YouTube is a bit of a shit show with regard to horror. It's part of the reason that my YouTube channel has kind of lapsed. YouTube seems to be trying to figure its shit out and failing miserably, and it, it's conversations that I don't necessarily want to be part Of With regard to Cannibal Holocaust, it's kind of a funny story. I had a long train ride ahead of me, and so I had ordered it. This was years and years and years ago. And I was looking at the case when I was on the train, and I was reading it, and it was like the most violent, the most egregious, the most horrendous, the most— And I was like, holy fuck, am I even going to be able to watch it on this train? Am I going to be able to handle it? I was so concerned, and then I saw it, and I was like, Wow. And it really just kind of crystallized what I think Cannibal Holocaust is and what it represents in the genre. I look at it as more of a cultural artifact. In horror cinema, more than a movie. I feel like its existence is more important than its actual runtime and mm-hmm. plot and all. Like, the story isn't especially noteworthy. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's pretty offensive. Yeah. I don't see any merit in the on screen cruelty at all. Like, nobody who sings this movie's praises has anything nice to say about that, but that said, I do recognize the significance of its impact with respect to the marketing strategy that almost landed Ruggiero Deodato in jail for making Mm -hmm. Snuff. It has a role in horror for that notoriety, and that role was played out in the fucking jacket that almost made me chicken out watching this Mm -hmm. thing in public. And it certainly inspired other filmmakers to try and emulate that kind of notoriety for better or for worse. That's how I feel about that.
0: All right. We have another question from Maya. What books would you like to see become horror movies? For me, I actually don't read a lot of horror fiction. Mm -hmm. I read a lot, but not not a lot of horror fiction. I just... It's not something I have gravitated towards, but what immediately popped into my mind when I saw this question was I would love to see uh, Grady Hendrix's book, My Best Friend's Exorcism.
1: Ooh, it's so cinematic too, mm-hmm. especially with that soundtrack. Yeah, they'd have
0: to get that soundtrack oh, though. Fuck they'd yeah. have to be able to afford all those songs. I just thought it was like, um, again, it kind of had that tragedy girls esque, yeah. like female friendship is paramount. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you don't do anything without your sisters. Like, they're the ones that carry you from strength to strength and pick you up when you're down. And there's some really terrifying scenes in it. And, um yeah, I, I just, that was the one that immediately kind of popped into my mind. And then as I thought about it, another one I'd be really, really interested in, and I've already mentioned it this episode, is Lunar Park, the Brett Easton Ellis fake memoir. Again, because he kind of creates this odd mythology of, like, this monster lurking in this kind of gated community Thing And, and it, there were some really, really evocative moments. And it was one of those things you can feel a writer writing to almost have a movie made. Okay. Uh, if you guys know what I'm talking about, that kind of sense that they're writing it to have it be made into a film. Much like Ira Levin did with Son of Rosemary, uh, the sequel to Rosemary's Baby, which is one of the worst books I've ever read. <laughs> to the point when I actually finished it, I threw it across my room. Wow. I hated that book. So I would like not to see that. I am slowly getting back into
1: horror fiction. It's been a blind spot in my life for the longest time. I just haven't been able to take the time to read even stuff that I really want to read. I've... I'm three-quarters of the way through the Scarlet Gospels and enjoying it a lot. I just don't have a whole lot of opportunity to sit down with a book. But ever since I got my dog, ever since I got Dante, I find I've got these, you know, half-hour, 45-minute slots during the day where I'm just standing there watching my dog squat at a (laughs) fucking fire hydrant. And so I've gotten into audiobooks and I've learned how to access them through the public library and as a result, I've chewed through a bit of horror fiction lately. Uh, I checked out the audiobook of Joe Hill's The Fireman, which was narrated beautifully by Kate Mulgrew, and I really enjoyed that. I was so immersed in it that there's areas in my neighborhood. I, I remember walking the dog when this moment happened in the book, and now every time I walk through that area, I think of that moment oh, I in love the book. That. Yeah, me too. I love that. So right now, I'm in the middle of audio book by Nick Cutter called The Deep and I'm enjoying it so, so much. I'm thinking about it all the time and this is the first Nick Cutter novel that I've gotten into, and I know that he's, uh, he's popular, and mm-hmm. he's got some, he's got some really popular stuff out there. I'm finding The Deep very cinematic, and it, it's reminding me of The Abyss, mm. and when I watched The Abyss, and I was like, ah, I wish this was a horror movie, I feel like yeah. Nick Cutter's The Deep is the horror movie The Abyss could have been.
0: <laughs> mm. Oh, that makes me want to read it. All right, B asks, gene kelly or fred astaire and <laughs> so obviously fred astaire don't even at me on this yeah
1: i don't i don't know how i could choose between them yeah i, I wouldn't throw either of them choose out of bed fred astaire. I would take them why what's uh, that i grew
0: up with him my mother is the biggest fred astaire fan well she's a big fan of both of them but i just grew up i think more enjoying the fred astaire films like fred astaire and ginger rogers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so as much as i don't like musicals or anything like that like i saw that question and i was like oh fuck yeah fred astaire <laughs>
1: I didn't have that. Im- I looked at that and I was like, why on earth would I ever have to, you know, like I, I can picture them dancing together. Beautiful. I, I almost got the sense that they were they were the Alex and Andrea of that era of cinema. Fred Astaire would cut Gene Kelly. OK, Alex. So our last question for this section comes from Amy Bettos. You've both been given a lament configuration box for Christmas, which you can re-gift to a high profile celebrity. Who gets the honor?
0: Well, I feel like the obvious answer would be Donald Trump, but I don't trust him to be able to figure out how to open it, even though it appears very, very simple in all of the movies. So I thought about this, and there are so many people I want to give it to. But due to the time we are in, which is January 2018, the person I would give it to is Casey Affleck. Whoa. Because I don't want to see that fucking guy Anywhere fucking else and I definitely don't want to see him presenting best actress at the Oscars. Mm. And also that movie Ghost Story, I know I'm all like you can like a movie and we can I cannot like a movie and it's all good and if you like that movie, fine. But oh my god, I saw that movie and it just like I just wanted to bang my head against the wall. I lost massive portions of my brain cells so watching that movie.
1: Casey Affleck is a bit of a special case because he was kind of ousted before the Harvey Weinstein thing. So he kind of he got his slap on the wrist and it was uh, it was a slap that was heard, but he got to keep. And so there's people slipping between the cracks of this post-Weinstein era, and he is definitely among them. Uh, there's contention right now about James Franco. I think mm-hmm. that's that's not yeah, going to be I any less Michael relevant. Michael
0: Fassbender was really fucking relieved he's not nominated
1: for anything this year. As an answer to this question, I was thinking Harvey Weinstein is a great candidate, maybe a bit of an obvious candidate. But uh, he's someone who felt that they were entitled to more earthly pleasures than they actually deserved. <sighs> So you can drag him right the fuck to hell by chains. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And this lament configuration, Amy, I assume it only includes the Doug Bradley pinhead. None of these imitator nonsense yeah. things.
1: So I did promise an... Anic- uh, uh, okay. And those films are The Brotherhood of the Wolf and I Forget.
0: American Werewolf in London. Hi, everyone. Uh, no, I don't like that.
1: Uh, yeah. Belch once if you agree. <laughs> Arr, arr, arr. Oh, what? <laughs> so, as Alex was saying, this is based on a true story of a ki- see, uh, It's easy to look back and be like, oh, you know, like science over religion, that's such a great thing, but science was used. <laughs> get down! No, no, she has to get, get, down, get
0: down, Alex! Get down, sweetie. Get down. I love you. Get down. She doesn't listen unless you push. Yeah, okay. I'm so sorry. I don't know why these two people even care about each other, mm-hmm. let alone are suddenly in the throes of like, don't let her die! do And it's a very cutesy, excuse me.
1: Uh, whoa, that whoa. was cutesy.
0: I'm delicate.
1: It tries to complicate the Enlightenment area. Uh, why can't I do that? I don't know. I always do that.
0: You need me to open this beer. The titular, Brotherhood of the Wolf, is like an old aristocratic yeah. controlled
1: force. Like stonemasons or exactly. something. Exactly. Who eats chips and drinks some beer? We, we do. do. Alright, well that's thirty-three minutes. That's more than this film deserves.
0: Let's Yep. Uh, you ready? <coughs> Are you
1: ready now? Yes, I'm. So the screening that night is a double header a header
0: don't do this at the live show. You oh,
1: goddamn fuck. witch! Now you've just jinxed us.
0: So I'll out. Uh, As many of our regular listeners know, we like to have a little tipple while we drink. <laughs> while we drink.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: wow, that is a beer that makes you burp.
1: That's an Australian burp.
0: But there, then this become it become it come that. Nah. I just feel like I want to like crush this and make out with you. Okay, well, maybe later.
1: Like, that can makes you look smaller. Does it? Mm-hmm. Do I look petite and mm-hmm, feminine? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Wait, hang on. Ugh. This is a burpee beer. Well, yeah. Murdoch allegedly took Bradley. Fuck. Murdoch origi- uh. I think just in a title alone, Wolf, just L. L? Jesus. There's an L. There is.
1: So moving along to the next film in our Australian Outback episode is a film from 2010 by director Sean Byrne called "The Loved Ones." I Have this 2009
0: shit. Am I not pretty enough? Stay tuned to
1: Faculty of Horror's social media channels for the design and details on how you can get your hands on one because we're happy for Happy
0: to take your money. Your face is just killing me as I say this. I'm so mad at Warner Brothers I know right now. One,
1: baby. He's doing pretty well. For... What are we doing next time? Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Our flu.
0: Beetlejuice.
1: I had the most random dream about running into Jeff Goldblum in a diner in the US. Really? Yeah. The entire dream was my anxiety about asking him for a selfie. <laughs> what if he doesn't know what that is? <laughs> Medically, it's tetrodotoxin. It's tetrodoxin. No, I was right the first time. That's all I've got on Night of the Living right. Goddamn Dead.
0: Uh, for listeners at home, if this is getting recorded, uh, Dante, Andrea's Pomeranian puppy, found a lead uh, pipe thing in the Moormar Vault where we record, and he just ran away with it. So Andrea had to go chase him. no oh, stay in here. Oh, they're still struggling. Ni wow say,
1: what's this? Can you sit? Sit. Show me how you sit. Sit.
0: Andrea seems to be doing some kind of Harley Quinn impression to her dog. You have so much
1: energy. What am I gonna do with you? Pick you up and kiss you
0: until you scream for freedom? Andrea's making out with her dog. Until you I don't know if you guys can hear that. i like to lick the inside of my mouth. From a reverse angle to Oscar, so it's showing Oscar's face underwater.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Being held underwater. You see these body plur- blarts.
1: Bloody blarts?
0: Blarty blarts. bloody blarts? Sorry. That's okay.
1: So now, for our final segment of this episode, we're gonna do something we did last time.
0: It was kind pretty of fun. kind of something we did last time. Kind of fucked it up last time. Did we? I, I don't well, know. We fucked it up because apparently you were the better friend. Yeah, that's that's fucked. That's <laughs> a whole alternate reality right there. But uh, we're gonna do a variation on the newlywed game, which I would maybe call the redundant couples questionnaire that gets circulated on social media. Yeah, but we'll make it fun. As we'll try. We <laughs> Andrea, you're going to be putting in music, right? So it sounds fun. So this is a set of standard questions that you as a couple should ask about each other. So we've both looked at these questions separately. We've both answered them separately. So it's not going to be like, we're just going to answer them together. Yeah. You're going to see. You're going to see. Just keep listening. Keep listening. If you wonder why, you know, after five years of doing this podcast, we're still together. Well, gosh darn it. You're going to find out right now. Question number one. Who asked who out?
1: Alex decided we should be friends. And then she brainwashed me into doing a podcast by stirring a teacup.
0: Bullshit. What? Bullshit, bullshit. Okay. I actually had a dual answer for this. And it was Andrea slash Alex. Okay. So I think I've told the story before. We... It took a little while for us to meet in person, um, but I had heard Andrea on the Roomwork podcast and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this woman is like the coolest, funniest, smartest person ever. I hope I one day get to meet her. And then someone who has been run out of the horror community... She she had, like, a thing with a really famous director. She maybe went to the Oscars. Some of you can figure this out, maybe. Anyway, they had a uh, a YouTube channel thing going on, and they asked both Andrea and I to be on it. Mm-hmm. And so we met that night, and Andrea had then, like, prior to this, like, added me on Facebook, was messaging me, and I think just to make sure, like, I was cool and also like, hey, what's up? And also Andrea is a social person, so she does this kind of stuff. And then I remember we shot it and you had to leave early. Okay. So I got stuck in the bathroom listening to her drinking wine and crying about boys. Mm-hmm. And then you asked me to go to my very first Remoric Cinema Cobb. I asked you to go to it? You didn't ask, You were like, oh, I'm going to this. You should come with me. And I'm pretty uh... sure I, it was at the old Toronto Underground Theater I want to say it was, like, Battle Royale. Yeah, maybe. And then, like, that's how I met a bunch of Rue Morgue people and stuff like that. And then we kind of became friends through that. But ultimately, yes, I asked Andrea to do the podcast. But I like to think she asked me to be friends. Okay. Okay. I I defer to the
1: (laughs) specifics that you just stated because I don't remember it that specifically at all. I don't know. It's funny. It's a moment with adults. When they become friends, where it's mm. kind of like, uh, are we going to take
0: this to the next level? Yeah. And I think it was also I hadn't really met anyone, especially any of the women who were like really into horror. Yeah. So it was like, oh, this could be a thing in my life. Mm. How fun is this? So I think last year we tried
1: to kind of keep score and there was a winner and a loser. Or are we doing that this year? Yeah, let's do it this year. OK, well. Uh, I win. OK.
0: Point me. She's already
1: won the entire
0: game. What about pets? We both have them now. We both have them now. Alex's new baby is named Moon. And I just got her in the last few days of 2017 Mm. uh, with my boyfriend Danny. And um, we're absolutely in love with her. She's a cat. We got her from the Toronto Humane Society. It's kind of a roundabout story of how we got her, but we got her and we're so happy. You can follow me on Instagram at scare underscore Alex if you would like to see lots of photos of her. And yeah, Moon. You're not going to get Moon her own Instagram? No, I you no know, no. Maybe when I get a better camera on my phone. Maybe it's weird. Dante
1: has his own Instagram, and he's got like followers that are also dogs. Like, there's a whole dog Instagram community, and they all follow each other, yeah. and we all ask each other, "Where'd you get that little denim vest? Where'd you get that little <laughs> Jesus <Christ>. coffin bed?" <laughs>
0: Um, and, of course, that already means Andrea spoiled her answer. So Andrea's pet is Dante. Dante, Dante, who has been around for most of this episode. He is now uh, with Dustin on a walk. Mm-hmm. So we don't have him in the room, mm-hmm. but he is here. And I absolutely adore Dante. I wasn't a big fan of small dogs. And uh, Dante is just a weird, silly little guy. And uh, I absolutely adore him. And it was really funny because um, so when Andrea and I went to Boston and Salem... Andrea had a- You'd picked Dante out at that point Yes
1: We knew we were getting him We'd picked out a name We just had to wait for him To get his rabies shots mm-hmm. Before we were going to pick him up
0: And so It was like I think you guys were going Like you'd made the choice A couple weeks prior to us going We went And then I think the following weekend You were going to go get him That's right So so was, Andrew and I basically spent the whole I don't know Four or five days We were out there together mm-hmm. So there was a lot of talk about You know Andrew being like Oh I, I just hope I love him As much as you know All this stuff And I it, was worried I wouldn't love you were him. so worried you wouldn't love him, and it was just like, "Oh, and as your friend, you're like, "I, I don't know what to tell you in this moment <laughs> I, I hope you love your dog mm-hmm. um and then a really strange thing happened. It was the last day we were in Boston. We were taking an afternoon flight, and there were a couple stores that really only exist in the states, just like mallish stores that I wanted to check out. So I kind of plotted this long walk for us to go up to this fancy mall in Boston. So we're walking we're talking we get coffee and going along and kind of just exploring the back streets of Boston. It's midday, like mid, mid morning. And there's a guy passing us on the street and there's some construction. So the sidewalk is a bit tight and he's passing by us and he's got this dog, like a smallish dog. He passes us and he goes, OK, Dante, that's enough. That's enough. And we both just like I looked back at Andrea and was like, I knew she was going to name her dog Dante. And I was just like another small dog named Dante. Could not
1: fucking believe it. Like the sidewalk was so narrow that we had to walk single file, and we were pulling our suitcases, so we weren't talking. We were just kind of like lost in our own private thoughts. And of course, I'm thinking about Dante, my dog. And then that happened. It was bizarre.
0: But yeah, those are our pets. I really like things like um, like things like that, like weird coincidences. <laughs> I don't know if I fully believe it, but I like to think those little like moments mean that things are working out the way they should. Sure. Like moments of deja vu or um, weird coincidences. So, yeah. And now you love Dante so much. I do love him. So we both get one for that. We do? Yeah, we're both right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number three. Who is the most sensitive? Well, uh, I said me. You did? Yeah. It depends on what you mean by sensitive, I think. Okay. I
1: think when it comes to getting feels from movies and circumstances and stuff, it's you. But mm. I have a temper. I'm a lot more likely to flip out over a Twitter fight or some bullshit mm. I heard about in the Toronto community or something really abstract that pissed me off will make me fly off the handle. So uh, so did you put you? I put that. It depends. <laughs> so you can you can have a point.
0: Neither of us will get that one. All right. All right. Sorry. I fucked it up. <laughs> Okay, um, question number four, where do you eat out most as a couple? Well, mostly
1: we order in after we record Mm -hmm. lately, but if we are going out for a treat, it'll be either banjara for Indian food Mm. or the keg for a sweet, sweet steak.
0: And actually, I couldn't remember where we ordered from all the time, so I just put roti.
1: Ah, it's roti. We get a point for that. Yeah. Amazing roti here in Toronto.
0: We're actually just waiting for some roti. Right now. It's on its way. Question number five. Who is the worst temper? I put Andrea. Oh, hi. We both get a point. It's not my fault. It's in my ethnicity. (laughs) Question number six. Who is the more social? I also put me. I also put you. Yeah. I'm extroverted to a
1: fault, and uh, with my position at Rue Morgue now, I, I... do a lot of socializing that I don't even want to, on top of all the socializing that I want to do, so.
0: No, Andrea, like, organizes things to be able to bring people together. And, like, no one else I know truly does that. I certainly would never do that. I'm way too much of, like, a hermit crab. Number seven, who is the neat freak?
1: I put you. Me, that's me. Yeah, I like to be neat and tidy, but I I just can't seem to pull it off
0: the way Alex does. I actually can't relax until everything is like neat and in its place like last night i was just hanging out in my room and like reading and watching stuff and i lit a candle and the candle kind of dripped down on the sides of my bookshelves
1: oh my god
0: and it kind of splattered on the floor a little bit jesus christ so as i was getting ready for bed i was like oh i'll just get that tomorrow and then i was like no nope. nope doing it right now <laughs> so i like scraped it all off wiped the surface down vacuumed it wiped it down again so it was super dry and then i went to bed I understand that. I very much understand the satisfaction of the neat and tidy. Yeah. It's
1: prioritizing it above sleep that I struggle with.
0: All right. This is one I'm interested in. Yeah? Number eight. Who is the most stubborn? I put you. I put me too. Yeah. Ah, it's not that contentious. Oh, okay, good. You're also a bit stubborn. You're
1: an only child. Yeah, that's true. I push you. I, I feel like I by now I know how far I can push
0: you before mm-hmm. I back down. But. And I'm so in my own headspace. Of trying to be like, no, be be flexible with things. But ah. I also recognize that I'm often not. So. It's not a bad
1: thing. Stubborn is, uh, you know, it's a synonym for steadfast.
0: <clears throat> oh, I like that. You like that? I like that. I want that to be the title of the ghost autobiography that you ghostwrite. Okay. You got it. Okay. Number nine. Who wakes up earlier?
1: I said me. I said you too. Yep. I'm not waking up at the... Actual crack of dawn anymore, but for a while last summer I was doing boot camp from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m.
0: You were just getting up at like 6 a.m. It
1: was the best time of my life. I'm dying to get back into it, but um, I'm trying to hit a rhythm with Dante. Early bird gets the abs. Abs.
0: (laughs) Number 10, who is the bigger family? Me. I said you too. But
1: you're much closer to your folks, so I feel like it kind of balances out, you know? Like if we were to gore.
0: Uh, well, you know, it's quality over quantity. That's right. No, I meant the other way in this question. Oh. It's quantity over quality. Uh, my family is larger. Boom. Nailed it. Number 11. Who eats more? I said me.
1: I said me. Ah! You know, we keep up. We do.
0: We're pigs. We do. We are swine. Yeah, we uh a year and a half ago, uh we were both guests on another podcast and we rarely, rarely do co-guest spots on on other podcasts. We try to as much as we can split up these things, because it's always super lovely to be asked to do these things. And we want to do them all. And we both have busy schedules. So if we split them up, we can kind of cover more ground. But this was one. It was in the city. They recorded not too far from where Andrea lives. And I was friends with the guy who was doing it. And I was like, well, Andrea, why well, don't we just do this together? And it was an eight-hour experience of my life uh-huh. that I will um. never get back. We basically subsisted on water.
1: Wait, is this the time I'm thinking of
0: in this yeah. very room? No, Stephen King. Oh, yes. We've been on a lot of – we've occasionally guested together on podcasts where we get trapped in rooms with men who just force us just to talk. Just take for, the fuck forever. <laughs> just get her done, guys. Yeah. Anyway, what does that have to do with food? I remember being like losing my mind towards the end of it because I was so hungry. Oh, he came out of there hungry. I was ravenous and i remember we went to meet dustin andrea's partner at a bar nearby just to get some food and i was just like i looked at dustin he's a friend of mine i was like can't even look at you can't talk to you i need food like <laughs> sh- 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 dustin stop asking andrea how she is <laughs> you shut your mouth and you stay quiet till i get food no. interestingly my current boyfriend was also at the recording did not come to the bar with us yeah but there you go also, another fun fact, it's really fun to travel with Andrea now that she has a pine nut allergy. Oh. Because we'd go out to eat because, you know, we'd want to treat ourselves. But then Andrea would often forget to ask about pine nuts.
1: Well, because it's still so new to me, you know, and I'll order something like, in the case that she's referencing, we were in Salem and I ordered a veggie burger. And then I was like, ah, shit. A veggie patty might be nut based for protein or something. And yeah, it was a whole clusterfuck. Yep.
0: Yeah. no points for that one. No points for that one. No points for that one. Uh, Number 12, who picks where you go to dinner? I said you. I said you. Oh, interesting.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that one was kind of a shot in the dark. Like, I feel like we discuss and agree, but. Yeah. But you are the more stubborn one, so.
0: Well, all right. I don't know who's going to get this one. This (laughs) next one is really hard. Who Um, has more tattoos? me how many no. do you have i Guys, i don't even have my ears pierced it's
1: not the same thing
0: no i know but like i don't have anything done i got to my, my ears body. pierced
1: as a fucking infant
0: i know That's i didn't something have anything weird any that, that italians do uh but andrea has how, do you know how many tattoos you have i don't know if you can qualify at
1: this point i think we're talking about percentage coverage <laughs>
0: <laughs> andrea has some of the most like beautiful and amazing tattoos i've ever seen actually oh, you have a new you. tattoo that i have not seen yet i do Hopefully, can you show me after we record? Sure. Oh. Yeah,
1: it's, it's in that chappy phase,
0: Always which is great, get a tattoo. But, uh,
1: but yeah, I'm a work um, in progress. Put it that way.
0: Yeah, and, and for me, I absolutely love tattoos. I think I've seen so many beautiful, incredible ones. Mm-hmm. For me, it's just, I don't know what I would get. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would get, and sometimes I think I've landed on something, and then it changes. So That's fair. I, I deeply enjoy tattoos on other people, and maybe one day I'll get one of my own. Yeah. A little fact- I think you should. It's
1: one. it's a really funny thing. It's 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 nothing that I get to kind of really sociology out on, but um a lot of people are hesitant to get tattoos because of the commitment. They're like like you they say yeah. I've got an idea and then it it changes. But if you were to get if you were to run with one idea, it becomes you. And it mm-hmm. bec- even if you regret it, even if it's not something you like about yourself, it becomes something you don't like about yourself like maybe Mm. you don't like your nose or maybe you don't like your teeth or maybe like you know it just kind of uh it fits into the hole and uh yeah there's sociology to be done about that by
0: me not right now but uh oh we're gonna stay here all night (laughs) sociology of tattoos let's do it (laughs) all right number 14 who eats more sweets
1: well i said me because i know that you said me yes but it's not true it's not true i don't eat sweets We had this argument in Salem where I feel like I don't have much of a sweet tooth. I turn down dessert. Sweets are too – if you say who eats more sweets, I'm thinking of candy. I'm not even thinking of like cheesecake or something like that, which even then I find a bit too sweet. But when we were in Salem, I I said that to you and then you made fun of me for getting – Some e-juice for my e-cig, and it was like cake batter flavored something. And then I had another one that
0: was like lemon meringue pie, and you were like, oh, yeah, no sweet tooth here. Also, to be fair, you are also my friend who has the most kind of in-depth sweet tooth when it comes to alcohol.
1: Yeah, when it comes to liquor, I do have a bit of a sweet tooth. You love
0: that, and I really don't. Like maybe the occasional kind of sweet fruity cocktail.
1: I like a margarita. I like coconut rum. I was addicted to Diet Coke for... Many, many years,
0: which I've recently
1: kicked. So I knew you'd pick me for that, but I consume more sweets, I
0: suppose. And that's not to say I don't like sweets. Uh, I think we proved last year that we were both savory girls. Mm-hmm. But every so often, I am like, I could really use a chocolate bar or a gummy bear. So it's not that I don't like them. It's just I tend to grab chips over those. Yep. Same. And the last question. Who cries more? I don't want to know, man. I do want to think about you crying. Uh,
1: Aww. Well, honestly, like... I've seen you cry, and I don't know that you've seen me cry. (laughs) I haven't, if only
0: for that story about when we saw Colossal.
1: I know, and that's, like, that's the only circumstance, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. We're not really in pain um, around each other. No. uh, That's
0: good. No, it's just, I know I get, like, recently, like, in the last few years, since my very late 20s, now into my 30s, I used to never cry at movies. Uh Uh-huh. Ever. And now, it's like sometimes at a trailer, I get misty-eyed. Yeah. I saw Thor Ragnarok the other day, which is pretty fun. Got kind of misty eyed at that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I think I'm embracing my, my sensitive side a little bit more. Yeah. And I think, I think we're both those kind of, we're, we're very similar, I think, in this way, is we're both tough cookies who have a lot going on and we want to do a lot of things, so we kind of, Push all the sensitive stuff down. Yeah. But I think we're both very sensitive yeah. and have those really deep sides to us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If I can think of the last couple of times I've cried, it's like from being overwhelmed or mm-hmm. being exhausted.
0: But yeah. So who won? Okay. One,
1: two, three, four,
0: five,
1: six, seven, eight. I have nine points. I don't think I won.
0: I got 11. Yay! Yay! You win. I win. I win. So, good. We, now we're equal. Yeah. And now, now we, we need...
1: know who the gloater is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're jumping in to another year of Faculty of Horror. Wow. Uh, this is kind of crazy. And I was saying to Andrea earlier tonight that the Faculty of Horror is not only a catalog of ideas and stuff we really believe in it also kind of feels like a scrapbook of our lives and i was thinking about it not that long ago but it's really interesting to me when we did um the audition episode and earlier in 2017 and i really love that episode i'm so proud of how that one came out but i was in such a like an angsty bratty spot about guys and now i'm in like the most loved up relationship ever yeah. so so i've softened on that and thank you andrea for cutting out so much of what I said in that episode. Not so much.
1: <laughs> it was just maybe one rant that, uh, that, that got a little, it got a little dark. off the
0: rails. Yeah. But, you know, we are so privileged and we are so lucky to not only have each other, to have found each other, but to have found an audience of listeners who engage with us, who care about what we do. And we've started to get to meet some of you. Uh, Salem Horror again, just to mention that again. It was just such an amazing experience. It was so much fun. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe stay tuned, maybe, maybe I don't Who knows? know i can't i can cannot say a thing. twenty
1: eighteen is looking bright, yeah, for a couple of reasons, and we won't say any more than that uh one thing I'm looking forward to in twenty eighteen is the launch of a new magazine out of Toronto. There's a magazine called Grim magazine that's coming out. Out of Toronto, like I said, it is female-led. It is looking at horror from an academic bent. It had a Kickstarter going on earlier this year, and I... Gladly contributed to it. And the first issue of Grimm Magazine is actually going to contain an interview with Alex and myself. And the editor has graciously offered Faculty of Horror listeners a giveaway of the inaugural copy of Grimm Magazine, which is going to be coming out in February.
0: So if you'd like to check out this new horror magazine, what you have to do is go to this show page. So facultyofhorror.com backslash assessment, whatever the fuck we call it. Anyway, go to that show page. It should be right at the top when you listen to this episode. And go to the comments, add a comment about what your favorite movie was of 2017. Whatever you want. Again, we're all buds here. It's all good. Unless you pick a ghost story. I'm kidding. You can still pick that movie. But I'll judge you. But... Put what your favorite movie was from 2017 in the comments. We'll leave the contest open until February 15th. Yeah, good call. Yeah, so get your entries in before February 15th, 2018. We'll pick at random from there and notify you uh, through there. Yeah. And February is also the
1: month that the magazine launches. So if you're interested, even if you don't win, we'll have a link in our show notes of where you can get a hold of Grimm magazine. And thank you so much for the giveaway and
0: for interviewing us. And, I mean, February is also home to the month of a really important holiday, which is Valentine's Day. And, you know, I, I just can't think of a movie that encompasses – Intimate relationships, the need for closeness, the need for people to be around you more than John Carpenter's The Thing. An
1: oft-requested episode, an episode we've always wanted to do, an episode we were waiting for the darkest, deepest dregs of winter to tackle, and I'm pretty pumped. In addition, February marks Artemis Rising for the Pseudopod, and they were very kind to invite us once again to host an episode. So if you follow us on social media, we'll definitely be promoting that when it comes out. But but be sure to check out the rest of their Artemis Rising programming. It's all short horror fiction stories written by women, and they are truly terrifying.
0: They really are. Off-putting and at the very least. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh of course, February is, again, Women in Horror Month, so make sure you're following Women in Horror Month on all their social media so you can keep abreast of what's going on with them. Fuck, 2018 is really exciting, we're only just getting started, I think, like we talked about off the top, 2017 was a galvanizing moment for a lot of people, and it kind of laid waste to the notion that the things we were buying into would protect us, and they won't protect us. So fuck, this is the time. This is the time to like lean in, stand up, shout, scream, get your voices heard. And also just as importantly, listen to the voices that are speaking out. If something makes you uncomfortable or upset, you know, use empathy. Listen, let's talk about this. Ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. Exactly. And um, we've got so much in store for you guys. I'm super excited for this year. Right. But for now, we've got Roti waiting. So until next time office hours are closed.